Welcome to Filmstrip and our reviews of the Alien movie franchise. There's an explanation for this. Featuring Nick. Check it out. I am the ultimate badass. And Jay. This is so nuts. Listen to what you're saying. Please note, these episodes will contain spoilers and in-depth discussion of the plots and characters of the films. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Aliens, starring Sigourney Weaver, Carrie Hinn, Michael Bean, Lance Henriksen, Paul Reiser, and a host of others, written and directed by James Cameron, released in July of 1986 on a budget of $18.5 million, grossed over $131 million at the box office. And Nick, at the end of our Alien review, we were having a conversation as we were heading into the second entry here about should there have been a sequel or not. And according to what I've read and listened to in the extras and all that stuff, the producers, after the success of Alien, Guyler and Hill planned to do one, but they held off on it, and the studio held off on it for quite some time. Now, that's really different from what we see today. Like, they're planning sequels before the movie hits the theaters today. Yeah, usually stuff's all green-litted, like, three weeks before it's released. <laughs> you, get, you, get, you get that yeah. little <laughs> cool news blurb where it's like, Sequel already greenlit. Not even critics haven't even seen it. They're already casting for Avengers yeah. Four, you know. So, but yeah, I mean that that is a little odd start to this thing. And I guess we need to talk about how this came to be a bit, and then how James Cameron got involved because. You know, if I'm if I just want to go ahead and throw it out there real quick, Arnold Schwarzenegger is uh, partially to blame and to thank for Aliens, right? Yeah, definitely. I guess uh, after the movie got made, after Alien got made, and it was a critical and you know financial hit, you know commercial hit that uh, Fox wanted to go on a sequel, but you know stuff changes at the Fox Studios a lot. I mean, if you keep up on their record, I mean, there's always a new chairman, new CEO, new whatever, and that was the case with Fox. Is back then was. They kept on switching everybody, and Alien just kept on getting pushed back, got pushed back, got pushed back. And then when finally this one guy got in charge, I think his name was Norman Levy, and he was completely opposed to the idea of the Alien 2. And luckily he kind of got scooted out of Fox, and then the new guy came in, and in a chance meeting, I guess, like Giller and Hill were in a parking lot of Fox, and he kind of brought up like, hey, we ever going to do Alien 2? And... Uh, Giller and Hill, who just got done doing a movie called Southern Comfort, were like, yeah, we got these ideas, and, you know, have you ever seen Southern Comfort? We kind of want to mix that with Magnificent Seven, and that's kind of how the ball got rolling with this. Very cool. And that and that is the the thing we must note from the outset here, that this film is very different from the last film. It's almost a genre, a genre switch. Last time was a sci-fi, gothic, horror film. And this film is a combat action movie and Gail Hurd the producer who was Cameron's wife at the time and Cameron always talk about this movie that they set out to make a war mm-hmm. movie and Guyler and Hill were the the part of that that said yeah we're all about the combat it doesn't need to be the same thing can't recreate that stuff so 
you know, do the thing. And, and that's how they, in the, the fact that Cameron got involved, I mean, look, he, he came out of Roger Corman's studio and he was a, a production designer. So I mean, everybody knew he knew what to do with the camera. He had written a, a, a draft of a script that ultimately became Rambo two, And his version's a lot different, but it, it was well-respected and people thought it was really good. He's, he'd done a lot of writing. So they brought him in just to write initially. They didn't, you know, they were, were going to go with the director and it wasn't until some things freed up on the schedule that allowed him to be able to take the director's chair. And, you know, he crafted this story with Galler and Hill and then they turned it over to him and said, go with it. And he wrote the screenplay. And I, I'm going to tell you, James Cameron, man, you know, people not want to knock on him today, you know, for Titanic and all this other stuff. And I'm going to tell you, I like the dude's films. Okay. Even the ones that aren't as good as the other ones, like, you know, look, Abyss is kind of it's kind of drab and it gets a little weird at the end. And Avatar, we've all seen that a hundred times. But if you saw it in theaters, it looks amazing. You know, the guy is a visionary behind the camera. But there was a time when James Cameron was all about the story, and I feel like Terminator, Aliens, and then Terminator Two really are the three of his films that. If you just pull the story out of him, the story is so amazing, and he really knows how to craft a a battle. When the Fox actually decided to get rolling on Alien 2, which was what it was called at the time, Cameron was basically preparing to do Terminator, but Arnold all of a sudden got called in to do the sequel to Conan, so Cameron basically had eight months to just kill, and if you know anything about James Cameron, the guy doesn't like to waste time. He's always got to be doing something, whether it's you know filming a movie or going to the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. I mean, this guy's always got to be doing something. So that's when he actually, you know, whether I'm not sure if it was him that contacted uh, Giller and Hill or vice versa, or maybe it was just both of them meeting at the right time, but they wanted Cameron to write the script to Alien 2, which Cameron renamed Aliens. And he, at the time, the eight months that he had, he only wrote about 90 pages into it. I mean, only 90 pages, but I guess it was only halfway done. And he gave it to Fox and they loved it. They were like, this is awesome. This is great. And Cameron's like, I got to go do Terminator now. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to hold on to this. When you're done with Terminator, you're going to come back and write this. And if Terminator does well, you know what? You can come and direct this too. So like you said, if it wasn't for Arnold Schwarzenegger and basically being called back to do the sequel to Conan, Cameron would have been filming Terminator and he would have never been able to even write this. And, you know, who knows? He might have a Renly, Rennie Harlan movie or something. But you're to tell me now I have to thank Conan the Destroyer for this? It, it, it did so, one thing right. But, I mean, you, you just. Hey, Nick, Nick, I smell a trilogy in our future. I don't know about that, that one. So. But you think about it, though. I mean, when you think about, like, Fox today with, you know, how they rushed out X3 and. Wolverine and all these other movies, it was like, you hear about them like saying, oh, we're going to, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. It's like, I, I opened up my mouth. My mouth was open when I heard that. I'm like, Fox waiting for something? That's crazy. Can I say this? That may be the only time in their history where that was true. <laughs> and because as we'll learn in the next film, when we talk about Alien 3, they had a release date before they had anything. Yeah. And so, and they they would always want to do that. I mean, I think every X-Men film was that way. Fox gets involved with it with a property, and they, they do that. They will put out a release date, and that, that's what you have to meet. And they tend to hire people that can make things to that date. I think the fact that they were willing to go with, again, someone who was maybe a little bit of an unknown at that point, an unknown entity, they were going to hand them this franchise was a bold move, but it was the right move because it, it takes it in a different direction like we've already set up. And 
ultimately it proved to be the, the wise choice because you put it in the hands of someone who's not only a capable technician you know, behind the camera, but is a capable storyteller and is able to get that out of actors. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the things he does with particularly the Ripley character, which I think are really interesting that we can probably see throughout his career here. But, uh, you know, Nick, I think before we get too much into this, we probably need a plot summary. And this is a long movie, so I have a feeling this one may go a bit. But uh, can you please sum up what happens in Aliens? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll give it a try. The movie opens with a shot of Ripley's escape craft floating through empty space. The ship is taken over by a larger ship which dispatches a crew to investigate. And they find Ripley in the hypersleep chamber alive and well. Right recuperating aboard the space station, circling Earth, Ripley is informed that her space shuttle drifted through space undetected and by luck was discovered by a salvage crew 57 years after the events of the first film. Ripley is forced to face the executive board from Wayland yutani and the board promptly ignores everything that Ripley says, claiming that she set the sh- ship to self-destruct for reasons unknown. She is then stripped of all ranks in order to undergo psych evaluations. Ripley pleads with the head of the board to check out LV-426, but he laughs at her and says he doesn't have to. There are 50 to 60 families already living on the colony, terraforming the planet of LV-426. Sometime later, Ripley is visited by Carter Burke, a Wayland yutani rep, and Lieutenant Gorman of the Colonial Space Marines. It turns out they have lost contact with the colony on LV-426, and they would like her to be a consultant for the group of Marines sent to investigate the matter. Ripley refuses at first, but soon reconsiders after a bad dream and the promise that any alien encountered would be destroyed. After arriving on LV-426, Ripley, Burke, and the Marines, along with the android bishop, discover the colony is abandoned. They see several facehuggers in a colony lab and read reports of the colonists who encountered the species. The only colonist they find is a young girl who goes by the name Newt. The Marines soon discover that the colonists are located in an atmospheric processor in the colony. The entire Marine platoon goes to investigate. They quickly discover that the colonists have all met the same fate that Kane did in Alien. The aliens soon attack the Marines, and many are killed. Only Hicks, Hudson, and Vasquez make it out alive due to the fast-thinking Ripley who drives the vehicle into the nest. Hicks takes command, only opposed by Burke, and deems the retreat and total nuclear destruction of the colony to be the only course of action. The dropship makes its way over to rescue the crew, only to crash due to an alien who was on board. Ripley investigates the colony transcripts and discovers that the colony finding the aliens was no mistake, that Burke ordered the colonists to investigate the derelict spaceship. To make matters worse, Bishop informs the group that the atmospheric processor has been damaged and will detonate in a matter of hours. With no chance of rescue, Bishop volunteers to remote pilot the remaining dropship to their rescue. Ripley and Newt try to get some rest in the now-fortified compound, but are attacked by facehuggers. Ripley is able to alert the Marines via fire alarm, who then rescue them and kill the facehuggers. Ripley informs the Marines that Burke sent in the facehuggers in an attempt to get the alien through quarantine. Dozens of aliens attack through the ceiling, and Hudson, Burke, Vasquez, and Gorman are all eliminated by the aliens while Newt is captured. Ripley and a severely injured Hicks make their way back to Bishop just as the dropship arrives. Ripley orders Bishop to take her to the alien nest at the processing station. She rescues Newt and then runs into the alien queen in her egg chamber. Ripley sets fire to the entire nest and they make their way back to Bishop, but not before the queen tears herself free from her birthing chamber. Bishop picks up Ripley and Newt and they escape the planet moments before the atmospheric processor explodes. Back on the Sulaco, the alien queen, which stowed away in the drop ship landing gears, rips Bishop in half and goes after Ripley and Newt. Ripley then uses one of the Marines' 
power loaders to uh, fight against the queen, ultimately throwing them both into the airlock. Ripley climbs out of the loader, opens a hatch, and expels the alien queen into space. Ripley, Newt, and a comatose Hicks, along with a barely functioning bishop, prepare for hypersleep as a Sulaku turns for home. Well, that's uh, that's a heck of a plot, man. A lot of stuff going on in this film, pretty dense. And now we got to talk from the from the top here. You know, there's really there's two versions of this film. There's the theatrical version, and then in 2003 they released the director's cut, which restored around 17 minutes or so back into the film. And I think what you summarize there is really the major beat of it but which version did you watch uh, i watched both of them multiple times well i've seen them both multiple times as well uh, uh, until i acquired the alien dvd set i uh i had never seen the director's cut so seeing it I, i've seen that one more now i think than the theatrical but i think the differences with a couple of notable exceptions are fairly negligible they're mostly just scenery and that kind of stuff but there's a couple of things we'll want to call out going through this debate i guess we just get right into this nick we open up with a very similar opening to what we had last time. It's kind of a slow crawl and this, the vastness of space, and you see this tiny ship wandering out there. And if you've seen the original Alien, and you remember that's the escape pod, and then we go inside, and sure enough, there's Ripley and that dang cat in that hypersleep chamber. cat. <laughs> yeah. I did also notice something, too. The hypersleep, and we never talked about it at the end of the last movie. When we opened up that last movie, they were all almost totally nude, you know, and Ridley even talked about that. And this one, like, she's wearing this whole, like, you know, choir gown thing. And I thought that was, that's an interesting choice because I noticed it at the end of the last movie too. And I think maybe that, I don't know if the, I'm getting into nitpicky stuff here or not, but I just noticed that's a change in tone already. Cause you know, unlike the last film where sexuality was a big, big undercurrent of that movie and to deny that is just ridiculous. That's not present in this film, and I think you get that right from the opening scene, don't you? Yeah, but again, I don't think you really need to redo that again. I mean, with Alien and the sexual imagery and all the you know undertones and subcontext, I mean, to do that again, I mean, what would be the point? I mean, well, no, no, you're you're right, but it but it is an interesting note because it. I mean, you were talking about in the first two minutes of the film here, they're already setting you up that this is going to be a different. Oh, definitely, ride definitely this time. And, you know, not all sequels do that. That was something I just noticed coming out, that this felt like a different film straight ahead. Now, Deep Safe Space Salvage crew, I, I got to ask, is this happenstance or has Waylon Yutani been looking for what's left of the Nostromo all this time? And, uh, you know, what what happens here? Uh, it's never really made clear, according to Waylon Yutani, who, you know, they're a big corporation. They're probably just trying to cover their butts. She just happened to, you know, slip by on notice, which... To me, it's like, okay, you got an escape vehicle. There's got to be some type of beacon or whatever. I mean, come on. A, a derelict yeah. spaceship that's been on this planet for how long has a freaking signal that a space shuttle can, you know, pick up. And you're telling me this, you know, space shuttle, this rescue thing, didn't have something similar to that, which, you know, but I don't think you can really fault the movie for it or even the writing on it. Cause I think if you really dig deep no. into the movie and you think about like what this company, this corporation is, I have always assumed that, you know what, they left her out there to die. That there was really no point in picking up Ripley or whoever the survivors were. I mean, from what we saw in Alien, the company knew everything. I think that Mother or Ash or, you know, both of them were sending information back as it was happening. So there's no reason to think that the company didn't know about this this uh, safety um, or the, the shuttle, this uh, escape shuttle. 
But what would be the chances of the aliens piloting the space shuttle? I mean, that's none. They, they're a company, a company is probably playing the odds. They learned that the Nostromo blew up and there's an escape shuttle. Why even bother picking up the space, the space shuttle? I mean, why risk the, why, why spend the money to go out there and get it? And why, you know, reopen a book that you want to keep closed? I think that from Whalen Yutani's point of view, it was, yeah, that really sucks. The thing that we wanted isn't there. It's gone. And there's a survivor. Well, there's no survivors. Just let her be. Well, and that that's an interesting point. The next thing is, and this is another reason you know you're in a different movie. What, what's the the iconic scene from Alien? It's the chestburster, right? Everybody knows that scene. And that's Even if you hadn't seen the movie, everybody had seen some version of that at some point, right? Well, they go with the fake out right early. You know, Ripley wakes up in the space hospital or whatever. You know, she, she's laying there, and then the nurse is talking to her. And at first you're like okay, what's going on? And she's, I don't recognize this place, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden she starts convulsing. And immediately I'm going, oh, there's no, there's no possible way that they're going down this road, you know, this early. And it is a fake out, but although she wakes up and it's the same nurse that sort of goes, do you need something to help you sleep? So you realize part of the information you got is accurate, but that she is haunted. And my only thought is, has she had the same nightmare the whole time in hypersleep? And if so, oh my God. Yeah, I think that's actually kind of something that they, they hint at the whole time. And, you know, as we get into it a little bit later, probably one of her reasoning, you know, the reasoning she actually decides to go back and fight this thing later in the movie, you know, are these dreams. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I mean, do you sleep? Do you dream in hypersleep? I mean, I guess that's kind of a question they ask throughout the whole movie, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. If, sounds like a Philip K. Dick yeah, short story. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that would be just a terrifying thing to experience. You know, you're in hypersleep for who knows how long, and you're just dreaming of the same nightmare over and over and over again. Yeah, but of course, as we learned, that's not to be the case. Now we get the first thing that's part of the director's cut. That's the inserted scene. And I got to tell you, it's one of those things I wish they had left in there, too, because it it says a lot about Ripley and, and Sigourney Weaver has always lamented that this got cut from the theatrical version, but we see Ripley sitting on a park bench looking at what we think is a park and it turns out to just be a hologram. She's basically just sitting in an office, but we meet Carter Burke, the smarmy businessman rep from the company and he's trying to talk to her about, we got to go meet the board, this inquest, it'll be quick, yada, yada. And all she wants to know about is her daughter. And I thought that was a really neat drop to put in there that Ripley had left behind a daughter on Earth. Yeah, definitely. And then she, you know, uh, Burke has the information with him and he shows it to her. And what do we find out? She finds out that her daughter was dead, is dead. That she, um, you know, died an old old woman in Wisconsin, and just she had no kids, no nothing, and stuff. And you know, hearing about that, I mean, well, what a heartbreaking thing to hear. You know, this. Well, I mean, Nick, Nick, relate for a minute. You've got a young son. Let's say you woke up tomorrow and realized you had been asleep for fifty-seven years, and he had lived a life and passed on. I wouldn't even care about going to the board meeting at that time. I would just be like, you know, screw everything, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't even I wouldn't even care about going to the board meeting for Waylon Yutani. I'd give him my middle finger and say, you know, stick it. I'm out of here. And and here's the thing, she doesn't. 
and that's that's the whole time he's going on and on about this board meeting. And we should drop, you know, say the fifty-seven years thing was dropped in the dream, so we figure he probably visited her, told her that, and she passed out from it during the day, and now she's having to hear this again, and that is still lost on her, the idea that she's been out there for nearly six decades. And I got to tell you, I thought that was a master stroke. And I don't know if that's Cameron or if that's Hill and Geiler that came up with that, but that was a genius idea. It can, it helps so much with the, how the plot moves forward and, you know, everything that's going on with the Whalen yutani company and what's going on back at LV-426, just being able to just like fast forward that many years. I mean, it's, it's a great device and, you know, I'm something that, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have even thought of, you know, who would have thought that, you know, you know I mean, we saw the hypersleep chambers and stuff, but in the first movie, but I never put that together until I saw this movie that, you know what? Yeah. You take, that's the whole reason they use hypersleep is so they don't age. So basically it feels instantaneous and basically Ripley, you know, instantaneously aged 57 years. I mean, it's, it's insane just to think about. Yeah, and I mean, that allows them to get away with so much in the plot, though. I mean, you can advance technology, because look, let's face it, between 1978 and 1985, when this was shot, we'd come a long way in special effects. We'd come a real long way. And we'd had all three of the Star Wars films, and they had done everything, and then, you know, ILM had grown, and we'd had Terminator now. We'd done a lot of really cool stuff. And so to show for that advance in movie technology you want to advance the world a little bit and it also puts and i think you brought this up before it puts distance on that story so now that there's i mean there's five there's two and a half generations of people that don't really know what the nostromo was it's just this old file hanging around the company I mean, the company's changed ceos how many times during that time you know that it puts all that distance out there and it immediately does something else ripley ended the last film what alone and even though she's now surrounded by people again, and she's, you know, a couple hundred thousand miles from Earth, but she's in Earth orbit, she's still totally alone in the world. And that's sort of her. I mean, if you're going to do the fish out of water story, I, I think it's a neat way to do it because it sets her up as immediately the lead character. But no, he tells her this about her daughter, and she's you know, really sad about it. And the next thing we cut to is what we normally would have gone to after he met her is the inquest. And she says, we've been here for three hours. How many different times do I explain it to you? And again, I love how in the future boardroom, everybody's still smoking cigarettes. We still hadn't kicked the addiction in the 23rd century or whatever this is. And they're all sitting there, you know, in this smoke-filled room. It's so 80s. It feels like any 80s, quote, business movie that you saw. You know, this boardroom with crap all over the table, and there's people over there figuring stuff up, and you've got an accountant talking numbers, and you've got a PR person and a VP here, and all this. These people just just going at her, going, what you saying? It makes no sense, lady. Yeah, I mean, but it, as much as it's like cliched, it's so realistic, though, at least from my yeah. opinion with dealing with, you know, businessmen and CEOs and stuff. I mean, it, this is exactly what they would be telling her. And this the kind of question I have that I'll ask you is, what does the company know? Do they actually, are they just like, this woman's crazy? She's, you know, telling us some, you know, BS story she probably made up in her head? Or do they know about it and are just basically playing her and being like, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's the thing. And this is an interesting point. You know, you got to figure that their idea of the flight recorder is not something that was necessarily physically on the ship. And if mother is not just a computer program, it's a thing that is in communication with the command back on earth, that all this information was being fed back to them. I mean, they know that they sat down on LV four, two, six, and there was no reason listed for it. 
you know, and that they took off. And then several hours later, she detonated the ship by turning off the cooling system to the, um, so that's all they know. And like you had said before, this happened so long ago and was such a failed idea, if you will. How many people's deaths did this get buried under? So I, I'm of the mind that at this point, this is what we're supposed to show here, that they're, the bureaucracy of the world has won't allow us to believe a story that seems so ridiculous like this. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I'm going to take a different stance on it. I think that the company does know. I think that they're just going through the motions. They can't admit to Ripley that, oh, yes, yes, we picked up that all. We have the file on it here, and, you know, you did a brave thing getting rid of it. Or they're not going to say their true intentions of being like, you know, you stupid woman, why did you Why did you kill it? We wanted that thing. You know, they're just they're, – they're playing it smoothly because, I mean, they have to – there's one big clue in this whole scene that leads me to believe that is they don't press charges against Ripley. She, the, she, she blows up a multi, you know, they say million in the movie. That'd be actually be billion. I mean, let's, we got to adjust that for inflation, but, uh, she destroys their multi-billion dollar, you know, mining thing and ship. And there's six people, you know, five people in an Android. The sentence in law would be with an Android, but there's five people that are missing and are, are dead. I mean, why wouldn't she be charged with something? I mean, if you're, if you go off on a work excursion and five people are dead when you come back, I mean, you're going to be charged with something. I mean, there's going to be some type of investigation and they want to close this file quick. They sit there and go, okay, you're going to have psych evaluations in which I don't think there'd be any real, re- who, who is this guy to make that, you know, recommendation? He's a friggin' board member, you know, and they basically, they strip her of, they strip her of all ranks. And they just, I think they just send her off to die. I think they're just like, you know, go, go work in a warehouse or whatever. They don't want, they just, I think by doing the psychic valuations, stripping her of ranks, they're stripping her of all credibility. So, you know what, go and tell your, you know, story to TMZ or whatever, because no one's going to believe you. Well, you know, that's an interesting take, and I don't think you're wrong for that. I'll tell you this, Cameron intends for this whole movie to work like an allegory for Vietnam. And not not specifically about the politics of it, but in the the broader strokes, this idea of the highly mechanized technical army going in to fight a primitive enemy and not being able to hang with them, and the disconnect between the bureaucrats and the people that have been on the front lines who may be telling them, "Hey, we need to do this differently. These people, you know, this thing is different. You've never faced anything like this," and the board being the the Congress at the time or the people going, no, 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 we got this covered and you're running the war from the, the state house instead of from the front lines, you know? So I think you can read it in multiple ways. I've always kind of looked at it as the, this is, you know, Cameron again, taking the, the take of the idea that bureaucracy gets in the way of what really happens oftentimes. And we miss facts because we won't go there with people, even though it seems completely implausible what they're telling us. And they and I think you're right that they just want to shovel this under the desk, get her put away, but they can't really do anything to her, so they do the only thing they can do. They basically turn her into a warehouse worker. And I love this scene, and I want to tell you, one thing that got cut is they cut the suspension out of the theatrical cut, and I wish they had left that in because that it lets you know something else about the company. They, ha- you, know, you asked who are these people, apparently they own everybody and everything. But another another part I like about the scene, though, is when she's going through it all, you're seeing the pictures of the the crew behind her. I mean, they're they're reminding you of the alien of the first alien movie. You see Lambert up there in Dallas, and you know Kane and everything. And 
you know, I just think it's a little great little, you know, nod that they have to the first movie is just, just seeing that behind you. I mean, it just, it, I don't know, at least with me, it just like, it resonates that, you know, this is a true sequel. You know, they're not just going through the motions like, you know, like a Halloween movie or a Freddy movie. They're really acknowledging what happened before and they're moving on from it. And I love how on the screen you get the file closed, scrolls across, and it's little dot matrix heaven there. Oh, I, I, I love that, though. I love that. It is great, but from that moment on, you're now in a different movie. Like, that's the last thing we're going to talk about from that, and then that is over here now. And we get to this whole confrontation she has with Van Leeuwen, the head of the board, and that's when he drops this idea of terraforming on her. And I would tell you, I, I like this. Again, This it's a plot device, Nick, but it's a smart one. It gives you a way to have population in a otherwise uninhabitable area. No, it's it's a great thing, and it it's... I think it's just I, great about this whole movie. I'm just going to kind of rant right now on it is there's so many questions that you have, like, you know, the way we're going back and forth with, you know, did the company know? Yes, they knew. No, they don't. They don't know anything. They know more than what they're showing, but it's not like a plot hole. It's not, you know, the writer being lazy or anything like that. It's set there for you to guess because you wouldn't know if you're Ripley, you wouldn't know at this point. And I just think it's when they say like, Oh, there's 50 to 60 families on this planet. Now you're questioning why the hell are those families there? Okay, yeah, they're terraforming. For what purpose, though? What purpose are they terraforming there? Is that just because of a planet that they know of, because it's a small planetoid that, you know, let's just, you know, we'll do the terraforming on the smaller planets, like they're kind of building their way up? Or is there another reason that they're at LV-426? And from what we gather, like how far away LV-426 is, for at least in my opinion, there's an ulterior motive to why that comp- why the families and they're colonizing LV-426. What's that? I think, you know, one of the things we're going to go on the questions that are going to come up is that from the first movie of, from the first movie Alien, there was a homing beacon that the crew followed down to the planet. Now, if the company was still looking for the alien, they would be able to find it pretty easily. I mean, the Nostromo found it. Why wouldn't an advanced science, you know, science or bioweapon ship not be able to find this? Well, I think they knew where it was, and I think they almost kind of used that homing beacon as over there is where the aliens are. We're going to put the colony on the other side of the planet. They didn't put the colony there for them to be massacred. I mean, as much as Whalen Yutani is an evil company, I don't think they're that evil. I think what their goal was was not to have a Nostromo incident happen again. I think that they, yeah, they want this alien species. But they're not going to send a ship down there and bring it back to Earth, not bring it back to, you know, one of the stations closer to Earth. They're going to do the stuff there on that planet. And what a better way to do it than to actually make the planet hospitable, you know, turn the, you know, whatever it is there to actual oxygen and, you know, make it a place where they can actually set up base and actually study this creature in the in its derelict spaceship and to, you know, continue research there. Well, that's an interesting theory. I mean, none of you can you can infer that. And I see how you can get that after you know, having watched this enough and and thinking about it and things. But the way it plays in the movie is that they don't believe her at that thing, and they don't know anything about this deal until she says something about it, and then it's the next scenes that 
when you know that got cut out of the theatrical, they take us to LV426, and you see these engineers walking around, and you got all this these kids playing in the air ducts and all that stuff. And there's this whole bit about you know this guy's going out there because he got sent on company orders to go check out a signal. Does he get to keep what he finds or or whatever? And the whole the, the engineer guy is basically like, yeah, you know, I don't care, you know, whatever, whatever happens happens. So that sets up the company as being very direct that 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 they hear this stuff from her and then they go well you know what okay yeah we will check that out because isn't that totally what you know the bureaucracy does nick like no we're not going to look into that and then they're already looking into it yeah true but i guess you know if we're gonna maybe kind of just jump ahead just a little bit we find out that burke was the one that sent them out there and it kind of goes back to the whole point i was making that the company knew about it well they weren't playing their hands i don't think burke knew about it and i think burke kind of jumped the gun when he found this out as being like a Oh, this is going to be a cash grab for me, man. This is worth millions to the bioweapons division. He went behind Whalen Utani's back or didn't really notify him, sent out the colonists because it was all on his orders to send those colonists out there. And I think, you know, once everything got screwed up, it all facially fell back on him. And I think that's why he went down there. Well, that's interesting. We'll, we'll get back to that. You're right. That, that is jumping ahead a little bit. Let's talk about those two scenes, though, that we do get on LV-426, where we, we meet, we actually meet the girl there for the first time, and this is in the director's cut again, but it's basically her dad and mom and her and her brother going out to, and they discover the derelict spaceship again. They're following the site. Yep, it's it's great to see that spaceship again. I mean, though I've seen the, before I saw the director's cut, I mean, I remember seeing the theatrical cut so many times, it was like, you almost kind of forget about it when you're watching Aliens, and then all of a sudden you see it, and it's like, oh, man, that's so nice to see that ship again. But it's different now. As you can tell, there's something was happening on that planet, whether it was the terraforming causing something, but the spaceship's in a different position. And you can see there's actually smoke and almost like volcanic activity going around it. But I think it's I think it's just a, it's a, it's a great I, – I like the scene. I don't, I don't know if it was necessary to have it. I think he might have been right in cutting it because it almost – Jumping from Ripley to the planet, back to Ripley, it's just, when you watch the whole movie in a whole, that seems just to be kind of a misstep, because it would, you know, like, it's just kind of discovering things with Ripley throughout the whole movie. You're right, and I think that's why it was, you know, the thing with Ripley's daughter would have been a good thing to add back in, and the thing with her being fired by the board, without, that gets said again later, but it would have been neat to hear them say it to her, because it sets up that board member to be, you know, pretty harsh or whatever. So this is the first time when I feel like, yeah, this is, yeah, this didn't need to be in there. This kind of kills the pacing, because Ripley, in addition to being the main character, and that's clear from the start of this thing, is also the eyes of the audience because she's been out of the loop for 60 years. So she's having to learn things. So that gives reason for her to ask questions that we all have and bring us along with her. You know what I mean? Like she's her mm-hmm. own plot device there. And I like that. And I'm, I'm with you. I'd rather see it from her eyes because I think it unfolds either way. You get it either way. Cause they, they, it's almost over explaining because they basically say everything that happens here later on in like three different scenes. So it's, it's a little much, but it, it's okay to have in there. It's kind of neat, but it's a much like a lot of things thrown back in director's cuts. It's a little unnecessary. I don't know. It's just, I think it's kind of cheap when you're showing a lot of kids running around. Yeah. Like when you come back later and you see, you know, when you realize what happened there, it kind of, you know, I think it's just kind of a little cheap shot to give the audience with the children. I mean, I don't know. What do you? What do you, do you think? Yeah, I, I never really thought much more about that. I I did like the. 
I was almost okay with the first part of the scene, the part where you're in the complex and you set up the engineers and they're talking about something, but I don't know that you can have that without the other piece. So in my yeah. mind, you just cut it all because you don't need it anyway, because it's fairly self-explanatory what happens. Like I didn't need the guy to take a half bite out of the donut for me to later realize when I see the half donut on his desk, they're like, oh, that's where that came from. I mean, I know Cameron <laughs> probably spent like eight hours thinking of that, but I, you know, <laughs> and, and another six setting the lights around it to shoot it, but I didn't need to see it. It didn't do anything for me. Because what I want to get back to is Ripley. Ripley is in her apartment. She's still having these nightmares and stuff. And she gets visited by Burke and Lieutenant Gorman you know, from the Colonial Marines. And I'm like, okay, Colonial Marines. Now, here's the thing. The first thing I noticed about Gorman, his uniform looks almost exactly like a United States Marine from 1986. So I said, well... One of two things I know about this. Either we took over the whole world or everybody just adopted our colors. <laughs> One or the other. But what do you think of the Colonial Marines? The idea that the Colonial Marines would be hanging out with a company man. I kind of gather that they're kind of one and the same. I think that, you know, the Colonial Marines are just an extension of Wayland yutani that they're, they're a military group. They're, Interesting. They're, you, could, you could even say like a rent-a-cop group. I think they're all in cahoots. I think, you know, Wayland yutani is Earth, and Earth is Wayland yutani and this is just another extension of it. It, it is. I, I like the fact that, though, it's not just the company pushing everything. Now we've got, like, the police. you got the authorities involved, right? So you're not just yeah. going to ask Ripley to go back to this place alone. You're going to send her with armed guards. And their whole setup is that we lost contact with the colony. Now, the engineer in the cutscene before says... Then this is the one thing he does set up, which I do like, is that it takes two weeks to get an answer out here. So you know there's a distance, and I like that realistic point there, is that you can't just beam a you know message across space. So I'm going, well, okay, has it been two weeks or more? Now, how do they know they've lost contact? So there's been some time passed here, but we don't know how much. Yeah. But I do like that, that we just sort of fast forward ahead. It sort of throws you into the idea that people are trying to go on with their lives, this is what happens. And the whole setup is that, that we've lost contact and we want you to go because we don't think there's anything. It could just be a down transmitter. But if it's not, then I'd really like you to be there as the expert, right? So it tells me two things. These Marines have never seen this thing and the company still has never laid eyes on this, this creature. They still don't know what they're dealing with, to borrow a line from Ash. But kind of like back to the LV-426 scene, isn't this a lot more eerie, though, just to hear it as in, hey, we lost contact with them yeah. than to kind of seeing it? I mean... Even just showing what the little bit what they showed, especially with like with Newt's father getting the face hugger, I kind of like you know your imagination is so much more freaky than you know what they're going to show you on the screen. I mean, what you're thinking about what happened. I mean, there's so many different theories I heard when this movie came out as far as what happened. Did the aliens come from the derelict spaceship? Did someone get a face hugger and bring it back, or a little bit of both? Or I don't know. I just I like the way when they just say like we lost contact with them, and it's just like. They're, they're, they 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 need Ripley because they're like you know yeah it could be a down transmitter but if it's not we don't know what the hell's going on and you're kind of the only person that might so well you, you know what you bring up a good point usually the rule in movies is show don't tell except when you're trying to build tension and if you do it right you can create tension by telling something that you didn't show that sets a mood you know all of a sudden you're talking about that we don't have to check out that planet everything's fine and then the next scene uh everything's not so fine. Mm -hmm. And so, and you know she knows immediately. You can tell by the look on her face and the way she, the way Sigourney Weaver plays it. It's like oh shit, you know we're going to do this again, you know really. And 
we all know as the audience, oh man, the aliens are back. Oh wow, how bad is it going to be? Because you already know there's going to be more than one just by the the title, you know. So it's okay. How how bad is it? How bad is it going to be? And I love how though she doesn't just immediately say, "Yeah, let's saddle up and go," because that would happen today in a movie, you know, that directed by McGee. Like she would already have her gun loaded and be pointing it and cocking it at people for no reason at all, and and they'd be running out the door together, right? But, <laughs> they, 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 they'd walk into the door and she'd be sitting there with a gun loaded, going, "I knew you'd be coming." She, She'd be cleaning the futuristic 45. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. But she's like, no, I'm not doing it. Forget it. I got other stuff to do. And Burke's well, like, I, I, yeah. I love what she says. I love what she says. She looks at Burke and goes, you threw me to the wolves. And now you want me to go back out there. You know, you guys hung me out to dry. You guys sat there pointing your fingers at me, saying I was a liar. I needed a psych evaluation. And now you come back crawling to me saying, yeah, we might be wrong. Well, yeah, and then he dangles that carrot back in front of her and get you reinstated as a flight officer. And so that answers her questions like, well, why didn't you do that before, loser? You were supposed to be on my side. Well, I, I, th- I think that actually infuriates her more because she's like, I said no, I mean no, and she kicks him out. I think just like right there, it was like, now you're going to, you know, give me back what you took away from me to help you out. It's like, get out of here. Oh, I, there's, there's also another part I want to bring up, though, too, is when Burke's bringing up her psych evaluations to her, how he somehow has access to her medical records. I guess HIPAA doesn't exist in the future. But. <laughs> good, good point. But yeah, he talks about it. He's doing everything he can to try to goad her into this, and she's not taking it. And that automatically tells you something else. Ripley's growth at the end of Alien did not get lost in hypersleep, and it wasn't temporary. Oh, she's not going to take crap. She's not going to sit there and you know listen to guys saying, yeah, I wet the bed because of this. Well, you know what? You're not going to guilt me into this or make me feel ashamed. Get out of here. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole bit. But but as it turns out, it only takes one more bad dream. And she's like, screw it. We're going. But I love the whole conversation, the video phone. It's like, promise me you're not going out there to take him back. Not study. You're going out there to kill him, right? And he's like, yeah, you got my word. And she's like, I'm in. And then she just hangs up, and then that that's it. And it's like, okay. And automatically you know, well, that is a damn lie. <laughs> and you know it's a lie. Because why else? If they were just going to blow it all up. They would just go blow it up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know if they just go in there and blow it up. I mean, there might be colonists and stuff still alive, but to me, I don't think they would be. If they were going in there just to exterminate, they wouldn't be bringing her away. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. But you get that feeling, you, and you're wondering who you, the only person you really want to trust as a viewer in this is Ripley at this point, right? Well, you you can't you can't trust the company at this point. I mean, yeah. everything they just did to her. And also, you know, they lost contact with the colony and everything that happened in Alien as far as with Ash and this whole, you know, signal and what they knew, didn't know. I mean, it's she has no reason to believe him, but I think she doesn't have to believe him. She's doing this for herself that, you know, she can't get over the dreams. It's killing her from the inside still. And, you know, even though she killed that alien at the end of Alien. She still never faced this thing directly. I mean, even the whole the whole movie of Alien, she was always away from the incident. Everybody around her was getting killed, and she was always away. It wasn't until the very end that she was able just to get the thing out of there, and then you know that was ending. You know, it her story ended on for Alien, but she yeah she needs to face this thing, and you know, I guess Burke even kind of says it. You need to beat this thing, get back on the horse, and you know take charge of your life and i guess that's probably the best way to do it and that's not that's not wrong advice because that is what she needs to do because you know you see kilt i mean she blew the thing out of the airlock she never saw it disintegrate or die you know she just got away from it so basically all she did was just get away that'd be like swimming away from jaws but knowing that it's still there and you decide to move to nebraska it it, it, it almost it almost be like you know like if you take it to a slasher movie 
um, perspective where if the survivor girl has her whole family and friends and everybody killed by this thing. And then she runs away from them in the end. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. It's like that guy's still technically out there. That threat's still out there. Even though it's far away, but you're going to have that in the back of your mind all the time. And you know, she's probably got the worst case of post-traumatic stress syndrome you could have. I mean, that, again, back to the war metaphor, it's the, the old soldier needing to go exercise those demons and you can't keep all that stuff inside. I mean, that was a major theme. It's still a major theme for soldiers today. It was a major theme for our Vietnam vets. And I mean, that was, that was part of it. And much like those vets, Ripley's been completely mistreated by the, people she trusted and the people she thought would be there for her. And so this is why she decides, I think you made a point. She decides to do this for herself. And I think you're right. She comes to the decision that I've got to have peace with this once and for all. So I'm going out there because if they're packing half of what they say they got with these colonial Marines, you know, which just the name of that makes you think ultimate killing machine people, then yeah, we're, we're okay. Cause I mean, look, if you're going to model, you know, nothing against any of the military. They all do a great job, and they, they fight hard and stuff like that. But the Marines are the are just the tough, the dude you throw in there when you just need it messed up. I mean, Marines are the, the elite ground force of our armed forces. So that immediately evokes a, an idea of what's in your head, of what you get with those guys, right? So mm-hmm. she had to be you know, thinking the same thing, and I think that works for the audience, too, and I, I like that. And even from another perspective, what does she have to lose at this point? I yeah, mean, yeah, she's got nothing she, left except that dumb cat. So, and what yeah, she and, probably says is staying there. She doesn't, she doesn't like that cat either. But you know, it's uh, yeah, it's she, she has no family. She's in a foreign place, in a foreign world, in a foreign time, and you know, she, this thing's eating her up. So, like I said, what else does she have to lose? Exactly. And so then we get into the the space travel and the big what what the designers call the big flying gun known as the Sulaco and I gotta say I ship design once again I love it man it does look like a big flying shotgun what what a better way to show like what this group is about is they fly around in a big gun. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, and that's exactly what Cameron wanted to evoke. I mean, they kept coming up with different ship design, ship design, and he was like, it should be people saddling up, going to war, they're flying a big gun. And so that's what they came up with, and it, it looks uh, fantastic. It's another one of those great Star Wars shots. And in the director's cut, you get a lot more around the, the ship. You know, you get to see all their weapons lined up, and you see the, the area, and this idea that they're in this... You know, before, the Nostromo felt like, you know, it had a it was a big flying uh, tow truck with you know enough space for humans to survive on, not exactly to be comfortable on. This thing looks like a cruise ship going into space. I mean, it's decked out and modern technology or modern looking tech and all that. And I got to say, for something that's you know 26 years old at the recording of this podcast, Nick, holds up pretty good. It still looks good. My only question is, Man, that's a big ass ship for only like twelve guys. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a lot of it. Apparently, fuel is not a concern in the future either because they, they're not. It's not like they're hauling a brigade out there. I mean, you know, they're they're taking a platoon, so it is a little little much. But you know what? I like it. It does. It gives that menacing presence again. That idea of the futuristic, um, decked out 
warlords basically going to war with the primitive society and the, even all this stuff they've got is not going to matter once they get there it's just it's not going to well as as ripley said in the boardroom you all this you can kiss all this goodbye <laughs> one of those things gets in here it's it's it, it crap that so, you think's so important just kiss all this goodbye so and i mean she's right but i love how they wake everybody up here we get the i love the the whole you know the big uh hyper sleep chambers opening up and stuff and all the marines start to wake up and i gotta tell you Sergeant Apone, Al Matthews, himself, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, perfectly cast as the sergeant for the group. Because Gorman's the, the lead officer. He's the lieutenant. But the sergeant is the one that gets the troops mobilized and then works with the lieutenant on the plans and everything. And I love his whole little opening speech here. You know, it's this getting everybody up. Yep, he's the first one out of bed, and right away he's chomping on a cigar. But I love his whole bit. You know, you meet all these people. and I mean, there's some rough-looking dudes. It's like a biker's gang in a lot of ways. You know, you got Drake and Wisbowski getting up you get um vasquez we'll get to her in a second and bill paxton yeah he, he, him and him and a pone in the beginning they got this report together and it's like ooh, the floor too cold for you you want me to fetch your slippers and hudson's like yeah what would you what would you sarge and he gets and, and yeah the whole back and forth and then you know you get corporal hicks in there that's michael bean he always looks like he's waking up with a three-day hangover and i just thought this guy wow the guy looks and ripley gets up and so you get all these people together and you see these you know two Marines, the, the two of the female Marines getting dressed, and they're like, hey, who's that? And they're talking about Ripley. And automatically, the Marines are like, she says she's on Alien, yes, so what? And they all act like, eh, no big deal, you know? So how did you read that? Did you think, okay, this isn't a group of experienced soldiers that's seen this crap before, or these guys just think they're better than they really are? I think at this point in, you know, human history in this movie, uh, the whole idea of aliens is something that they've encountered. I mean, they haven't encountered this specific type of aliens, but from what I was gathering from the actual space Marines is they've encountered aliens before. So it's kind of like, wow, she saw something. Whoop-de-doo. You know, God, we've seen stuff before too. Nothing probably is, you know, obviously not as dangerous as what they're going to encounter in a few minutes. But yeah, I mean, I think they were just kind of like, yeah, okay. It'd be like, you know, you coming over and being like, I drove a car. It's like, you know, I drive a car every day. Congratulations, man. You know, yeah, been been there, done that. But I I think that they're kind of putting on a little show for Ripley's sake as well, because you know right away you know she was like oh who's Snow White and then she starts doing pull ups right away and stuff. I think it's a little bit of a little bit of posturing. I think I think Vasquez is just bad anyway. I mean I mean doesn't uh, the guy say that to her anyway? You're just too bad, Vasquez. You know and she well she goes, he goes he goes that's that's a great gotta, movie. It's yeah. a, you ever been mistaken for a man, Vasquez? And she looks at Hudson and goes, No, have you? Yeah, I mean yeah, there, there's all that humor and Cameron's full of that stuff. You know, I'm just, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say too. I know there's a lot of people out there that rip on his dialogue and say he's not a good writer. He can't really write interactions. I, t- I tell you the truth. You know what? You hang out with any. People, you know, like, you know, blue collar people, you know, that who I am, you know, it's like, that's interactions that I would find very common at a bar, at a, at a, at a, at a rec room, at a gym. It's like, there, there's, there's no over macho, egotistical talk here. That's just how some people talk. So I just, it's just one of those things I've, I've read on the internet, I've heard on other podcasts where people are like, oh, James Cameron can't screw you. You know, that, yeah, he can. 
Well, what the, what's funny to me is that he got Jeanette Goldstein, who, if you've ever seen her in anything else, and yes, you have, seen her in a lot of James Cameron stuff. She's a very feminine-looking woman. I mean, she's very, very pretty. And if you know her background, she came from, like, theater arts. And, I mean, she's very dainty as a person. But they rip her I mean, she is ripped in this movie, and she's got that short haircut, and she's talking with that heavy Spanish accent, and she's just hardcore, you know? And immediately, and I can't help but do this. You know, I've, I've said before, uh, offline with you, we have a conversation, is Ripley the prototype for Sarah Connor or vice versa, and which one leads to which? But i got to tell you, there's a little bit of Lieutenant, Va- or a little bit of, uh, of Private Vasquez that makes its way over to T2 with Sarah Connor, particularly the way Linda Hamilton gets all built up for that. Both of them got those ripped arms, man. They're pretty... Uh pretty jacked you know yeah i mean yeah she i mean but you know you get the feeling immediately like you know hudson maybe i don't know he may just be the goofball gomer pile of the group vasquez would kill yeah, you if you to it i i think i think like what vasquez represents though is kind of like you know what ripley could become almost in a way you know where it's you know ripley's you know tough she saw that she was pretty tough at the end of alien but this is like the others you know all the way over to the spectrum of this is, you know, a hardcore female, you know, someone who's, you know, lost, you know, she's not exactly like motherly like Ripley and, you know, she's, you know, one of the guys, you know. Well, you brought a good point, maybe too far over to the other side, that there has to be a balance in, in your life. But the whole point of this is we gather everybody together so that we, well, we do two things. We start setting up these Marines at the whole dinner table bit and they're all talking and whatnot. And we introduce Bishop. We gotta talk about Bishop for a second. Lance Hendrickson, who you know has been in a lot of mm, these kind of films in his life, he's kind of made a career out of this stuff, is the new android in this. But he comes off as this kind of gentle, you know, Bob Ross painter school teacher kind of guy. And it totally freaks Do the trick. Do the trick, uh, Bishop. She, well, yeah, oh, yeah. The, well, not only the bit with the, the knife and, and, you know, he gets Hudson's hand and everybody's seen that scene. But when he comes back and, you know, Burke knows who he is or who it is, I guess we should say. And he's kind of bleeding that milk stuff. And that's when Ripley just loses her mind. Well, I think at this point in, you know, at least in human society in this movie is androids are commonplace. I mean, there's probably one in every classroom at this point And, you know, you know, Bishop, I mean, not Bishop, um, Brooks looking over at Bishop when he's got like the, uh, the milk coming out of his finger and he's like, man, you, know, you never miss and stuff. And they're all kind of laughing about it and Ripley jumps out of her seat, you know, but you can't blame her. I mean, look what happened to her in the last movie and right away, uh, Burke completely makes up a lie. He's just like, oh yeah, the, the other model that she was on, the, uh, Hyperdyne systems or whatever, um, malfunctioned and, uh, yeah, it just got a little bit twitchy and stuff when, you know, Ripley knows that's not the case, you know. I love how Bishop is programmed to be able to understand that. Like, oh, yeah, those models did that. I, can't, I couldn't hurt another person. It's totally against my programming in nature. And, of course, we are automatically supposed to be on Ripley's side on this. It's like, no, don't trust the android. Matter of fact, cut his head off right now and set him on fire, right? Yeah, de- definitely. And even, like, Bishop's actions almost through three-quarters of this movie, you're looking at him going, you know, he could be either which way. I mean, he could be Ash 2.0. You yeah, don't you don't know. know. But up until that point, he hasn't presented like Ash did. He comes off much gentler, even though he does the kind of cruel trick to Hudson. You almost feel like Hudson deserves that, you know, So with, oh, with, that, the, whole, that, that you know, with the whole but, knife thing. So so it, it, it's a neat dynamic, you know, but the, you get that scene at the table, and then 
and it you also get the whole idea the lieutenant doesn't sit with the the enlisted men the grunts and i i love how these guys go oh yeah i guess he's too good to hang with us or whatever and i, I want to tell you something i know a lot of army officers and a lot of enlisted men that still goes on to this day the only time they sit together is if they're at war together in the same place the officers do not sit with the enlisted men that's the sergeant's job that's that's why you have ranks in the enlisted but that's a that's a, di- a dynamic though you know that there's a disconnect between the officers who are school trained versus the guys that actually know how to do the stuff on the ground and and I did like that they set that up cuz you automatically build tension inside of a group that's supposed to be a unit not even in just you know military. I mean, you get that even at workplaces where it's like the managers sit next to each other, and then the rest of those grunts sit next to each other. Something we can all relate, but that's also again go back to the allegory of Vietnam. That was the thing was that you had these educated officers who had no real ground experience, and you had all these troops that had maybe been in Korea or had been through other things that knew better, but weren't being taken seriously. And it all leads to that big briefing. And I got to tell you, you know, it, it would be a temptation to let Ripley tell her whole story today. There would be flashbacks of it, you know as she's telling it. But I love how she gets interrupted in the middle of it. You know, like, uh, excuse me, is this for real? You know, like, they just totally cut her off. And, and I love how she never gets to tell what really happens. You know, they have to, you know, supposedly go read it all on disc. And I, I don't know, I liked that. I liked the fact that they were all just so cocky, like, yeah, we got it. You know, go go sit down. Yeah, I, even if you, like, I know it really wasn't shown in the movie, but on the um, the dropship, you actually see their logo called, you know, Bug Stompers, We Endanger Species. So it kind of goes back to my point about they've already encountered different types of aliens. So there they got this woman going on about some alien thing, and they're probably thinking, yeah, we've encountered, you know, hundreds of different kinds, you know. Yeah, you know, you're full of yourself. You're full of whatever this thing is. Okay, we'll handle it. You know, we've we've dealt with it. We've dealt with worse, or at least that's what they think. And the last thing that gets set up is Gorman moves them all into place. They start loading up the ships and all this stuff, the drop ships and all the, the – we see the APC, which is like this semi-tank car thing. It looks like something out of T1. But anyway, they're, they're getting all that together, and Ripley, that's where she drops that she knows how to work the loader, you know, which you know immediately. They're like, well, that's coming back later, you know, because you can't, you can't show the gun in Act 1 and not have it go off in Act 3. So that's clearly yep. what's going to happen. But I like that. I like that she asserts herself. It's like, well, can I do something? And they're like, well, I don't know. Can you do anything? And she's like, yeah, I can do that. And so she goes and gets the thing, and the two dudes are like, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, Apone and Hicks are like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, load that in, load yes. that into there. You know, so and, and you yeah, can tell the reactions though, great. Yeah, and you can tell though that that to the sergeant and the corporal who in the enlisted they would be the next guys in command below Gorman. They had you know she has won them over by trying to be one of the guys you know and to make herself useful and I I like that though because it it allows that relationship to build that's going to really build throughout the rest of this film. Because when, when they get that planet, man, all hell breaks loose. And even even just a little tidbit on this scene is you see Hicks and a pawn talking together. So it kind of shows you that Hicks isn't, you know, like Hudson or Vasquez or Drake, that he's a little bit higher up. Yeah, well, he's he's got his stuff together. He he and someday would probably be a pawn. Yeah. I mean, if, obviously, you know, he's the corporal and stuff, and Apone's a sergeant. But even if you just disregard ranks and stuff like that, you can just kind of tell from this point that, yeah, Hicks is kind of like the third in command. You know, there's 
Gorman, a pawn, and then it looks like there's Hicks. Okay, I like Michael Bean. I've seen him in all kinds of stuff, and I like him even in some of the cheesiest stuff he's done. I just think he's a fun guy to watch. He's just one of those actors that can – he always pulls off roles where he has to be in command or something. He just seems like somebody that could command attention in whatever he does. And he, I thought he was great in Terminator. He's great in this. He's good in Abyss. He's, I mean, he's good just about everything I've seen him in. And I really buy him. I mean, I buy him as – yeah, he, he would work. And I love the whole dropship sequence, the whole express elevator to hell going down. I mean, how many times have I heard that, you know, and it all came from this, this movie and it's hilarious. And I will never forget. And I, I didn't say this at the start, Nick, I saw this in theaters when it came out. I went with my grandmother to see this. My grandmother growing up was into all the action horror films and she would take us to go take me to go see them. And we went and saw this and she just cackled at this scene. She thought it was hilarious. And I thought if my granny can think this is cool, then I know it's cool. You know, so um, I love this whole scene. And uh, you're talking about Hicks. He's asleep the whole time. And I love that. I'm like, yes, because I can relate. If I'm in a car with somebody, I don't care what's going on. If I'm not involved in the conversation, forget it. I'm out. <laughs> yep. So, so same here. Same here. It's yeah. like if I'm on an airplane and it's really turbulent. It's like I'm going to sleep, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I'm going to ask you the effects here. The whole drop ship bit where they, where they drop the looks like a Harrier jet almost off of the Sulaco into the the orbit of, of LV426. Do the effects hold up for you? I mean, it, you can see the lines and the wires, but I kind of like seeing an actual model though. It does. I mean, you can kind of tell as they get into the atmosphere. You can see the matte lines and everything, but. What I like is that they actually built a lot of that ship. I mean, when they're showing the pilot in there and then they're kind of showing the camera go around the nose and to the side. I mean, they actually built that. I think that's so cool. You don't you don't see that. No, no. All that would be CGI now. But it's I like the fact that they would build the facades back then. I mean, it's all foam and, you know, stuff like that. But it's painted up to look like metal. But it, it looks good. I mean, it. It's it's a it's a it's it's a you know missing art form today, and it's 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 great. I love seeing. Well, it's that. just a different art today. Today that art is a gra- is a visual graphic instead of being like an actual piece, you know. But there's still some films that'll go for the pieces, and I I like that this is one of those. You know, Cameron for all of his CGI love, and he is the master of a lot of that. He still uses a lot of physical stuff in his films, and always has. I I like that about him. They arrive on. The planet, and I gotta ask: the lieutenant is running all of this from like the hub. He's, you know, they're on the big vehicle that drives up. The dropship takes off and is circling around, you know, for air support because it's not only their their drop, but it's their air support. And so the ground troops move in, and Apone, along with Burke and Ripley and Bishop, are sitting in the ACP, and and Gorman can see every not Apone. Gorman is sitting in the ACP with Ripley and Burke and Bishop, and he's watching off of everybody's like eye cameras, you know, so he can see where everyone is. He's got their life signs up. He knows how much ammo they got. He's watching, and he's sort of directing the war like he was playing a big video game yeah the more the more i'm seeing gorman too the more i'm thinking you know this is probably the college educated corporate guy that got into the military and they just put they put him right up to you know commander of this whole thing because he just seems like he i don't know i just got the feeling especially in the dropship they're talking like oh how many drops has this been for you gorman and he's like 36 um 34 simulated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he it, the idea that he he would be, but that's the knock on again on the officer of the Vietnam era was that they were educated and the by the book, and he's a by the book guy. He's already said, "I'm by the book, by the book." You know, do it by the book, people. I love Hudsonson next to Vasquez. Though when he looks at her, he's like, "Great." Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you you get that disconnect again from the enlisted guys 
the, the actual ground troops versus the officer that's running it all from the big you know, camera setup. But I like that, that that would give him the view, and that's how they're breaking in. And they, they basically kind of break into the complex. I mean, they go in, they wire the doors up, and they get inside, and they start looking around, and there's it's it's just stark. And, you know, having, again, you watch the director's cut, you saw it populated 10 minutes before, and now you see it completely gone. There's that effect. But I'm I'm almost akin to, like, the the theatrical cut, Nick, where you walk in here, it's like, where the heck is everybody? And why is there, like, stuff left everywhere? So that, that doesn't mean people packed up and left. That means they got taken. I got to point out, too, is, like, in this point of the movie, I mean, we're well over, I think it's, like, 35 minutes into the film. I think, you know, a lesser film, this would be 20 minutes into the film. You get, like, so much more just, like, the character stuff, the Marines talking to each other, so much stuff with Ripley that it's, you know, it takes a while to get to this point, but I just think the movie's so much richer for it. Well, yeah, the the slow build always pays off, and particularly Cameron films. Let's just look at James Cameron films. The ones that are really good are the ones that give time for everything to build and get you into it, and then once they hit the gas, it's on. And and everything we've seen up till now is going to have a payoff later in the movie. And I like being rewarded as an audience member who will pay attention to this stuff. And you know what, though? If you're going to do that, you have to keep me engaged. So they keep introducing new things all the time. And it's the whole bit. And while I'm watching this, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of it from a fresh perspective here, is what is, you know, what is happening here? What has Ripley got to be thinking about watching these guys walk around? And when she sees the basically the carnage that's left behind, which there's nothing there, she's got to be having flashbacks. So like I, I know exactly what this looks like. I've seen well, she, this. You, you can tell she's having flashbacks without them showing you that she's having flashbacks. I mean, they show the you know she's looking in the cameras. I mean, she's in safety, but she's still feeling. I mean, you can tell that she's remembering what happened, and you can almost see like her hands over her heart. Yeah, kind of like she's like bracing herself, like you know, almost like ready to have a panic attack in a way. And she's just you know watching them, watching them, watching them, and then you know you cut them back and forth between that and. Again, yeah, I mean, just I'm thinking back to the LV-426 uh, scene that we saw earlier, and it's just like, it's just not needed when you see this stuff. I mean... Yeah, it's, it, this is so much more effective to, to have gone this way, and that's why they were right to cut that, was because this puts you automatically on edge as an audience. Well, you can tell something they, happened. You can tell something yeah. big happened here, but we just missed it. It's like... Exactly, yeah, that line is, hey, whatever happened here, we missed it. And then they walk into the lab and they see the specimens. And I got to tell you, that's a great jump scare when... When Burke, who winds up in the lab, walks up to one of the the face huggers that's you know in the liquid, and it just jumps on the glass at him, you know, like it's still trying to get to him. And I'm like, wow, that that was pretty good. And even before that, though, I like it when uh, you know they, they're in this thing for like five minutes, and there's Gorman going, "Yep, area secure, area secure," and Ripley literally takes off her headset and she throws it down. It's like this this is not secure. This is not secure, and it's like she's probably yeah. thinking, "You bring me on here to be a freaking you know advisor." And you're not even listening to me and stuff, but no, they, they, they head on in and stuff. And you can tell even when she's walking in, she's a little, you know, she's shaken up already. And yeah, I just, even when they got over to the facelucker scene, I mean, as much as like that, this kind of startling when the thing kind of jumps at you. I mean, the first couple of times I saw it, I did kind of jump up a little bit, but Hicks reaction where he's like, oh, it looks like love at first sight to me as he says the Burke as he's just staring at it. But the important part is that you learn two things. One, they've been collecting the specimens, so that's automatically, okay, they've discovered the thing. And two, Bishop starts reading through medical records, and he's like, hmm, they killed this guy. They ripped his face off, taking it off. So everything you know that the, the Nostromo crew thought would happen did happen. The thing would kill whatever it was attached to if you tried to take it off. And so... 
you know, automatically you, you've set the bar back to reminding, or you've set that out there again to remind people these things are incredibly dangerous. You know what happened to these people. We know now where is everyone? Where did they stash them? And that's what the next bit comes about. And then we get the blip of movement, and that's where in the theatrical cut we do introduce the character of Newt, the little girl, Carrie Hinn. Yeah, it's also a nice little introduction to the uh, motion sensors, which are going to pay off big later in the movie when they're, you know, tracking what's going on. And also another thing that pays off, too, is when they, you know, they kind of fire at Newt at first, you know, <laughs> I think kind of showing again, maybe the Marines aren't exactly the, you know, maybe the experienced badasses that they're trying to claim that they are. I mean, they just kind of blind fire at something running across, but... Uh, Ripley sees that it's a little girl and, you know, she's runs into the air vent and Ripley, you know, takes off after her to rescue her. And uh, I think it's just kind of a nice little payback later in the movie when we, f- you know, find out that Newt, there's, you know, she knows about these air vents and that kind of ends up saving their life later. Right. I mean, you know, in the earlier scene that got cut, she's playing in them. So that's the whole bit is that that's how she would know that. But you can just accept that she would know it anyway. Right. I think she even I think she even brings it up later that she was, you know, played in that as a kid and stuff like that. So, again, the stuff on LV-426 before was kind of, you know, just. Just, just they are saying the same thing twice. And I love, and I love how they, you know, Ripley's able to draw her out. You know, Gorman keeps hammering on her and all this stuff. And even the other, you know, the the other one of the other female soldiers can't really get her to talk. And Ripley, you know, starts washing her face off and just starts, you know, just talking to her, just talking like a normal person. And then all of a sudden, she just starts talking. Oh, she's she's talk she's talking to her like someone who's caring instead of someone trying to pry out information and then when she doesn't say anything, total brain lock and walks away. It's like, yeah, insult her. Like you're gonna get some information out of her that way. Exactly, yeah, because that's how you talk to an eight-year-old. So you know, it's to insult them because they're so want to respond to that. And, 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 and Ripley <laughs> knows at this point too that you know this girl has probably seen what I've seen, if not worse. You know, she's gonna. Right needs a little and she's and she's eight years old i mean come on well and she confirms that you know because she's like where's your parents where's your family and she's like they're dead all right can i go now ripley's like okay i'm sorry and then she's going well these people are here to protect you and i love neutral reactions like won't make any difference yeah because she's obviously she's, she's seen something and for any of the fans out there you can actually get online free it is actually a comic book that came out with this movie called newt's tale which is um it's kind of a neat little story it's actually about what happened with her before the Marines got there. it's I mean, you can pretty much put the pieces together, what happened, you know, from the deleted scenes as well as what she says. It's a neat, it's a neat little read. I won't get into it, but it's a neat little read for anybody out there who wants to check it out. Yeah, this this whole bit is that they're trying to find where the colonists went, and they've got Hudson on this, it looks like the mall map, <laughs> trying to find everybody. He's looking for the colonist transmitters. They got they have colon they have transmitters in them. Is that right? Yeah, they have the transmitters like surgically implanted in them. Okay, so is it, yeah, because Burke drops that. You're right. Yeah, so that that's what he's looking for, and he finds them all clustered together. And you know, they're like, "What's the town meeting? You know, what's going on?" And so they suit up and they're ready to roll in. And I'm like, "Okay, yes, great." And I got to tell you, I love this whole rescue mission bit. This the, everything that they're going through here when they start crawling into that atmospheric processor. It slowly goes from being the machinery that we would expect it to be to turning into that ribcaged alien like the derelict ship was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which another kind of interesting point, though, and this is um, actually how where they find them is on a whole different side of the complex. It's not like they were in the next room next to them. They were actually in the atmospheric processor. 
and they actually have to take a little short drive over there to get there. So it just kind of adds a little bit more later in the movie and stuff is the why, you know, stuff takes as long as it does. But yeah, I think it's, again, they all go over there, everybody, including Newt, except for the people in the dropship. You have uh, two pilots that are waiting at the dropship, go over to the atmospheric processor, and then the whole entire Marine co- Marine group, except for obviously Ripley, Burke, Newt, and Gorman, head into the atmospheric processor. So they finally discover some of the colonists, and they they, they see some cocooned up. And, but we need to say something here. But as they get deeper into this thing, Ripley brings up a point that, hey, wait a minute, isn't this like a big reactor? So if you shoot guns in there, isn't that going to end badly? And Burke lays out the whole, oh, yeah, yeah, this is going to start a chain reaction. So they have to collect everybody's magazine basically so they take all their bullets out and i love the i don't know the guy's name that does it but the one line's like what am i supposed to use harsh language <laughs> and, and they're like no just hit them in the head with your your rifle so you i love how we send the marines in to do the job but then we're going to disarm them and that is and i'm telling you and i nobody will ever admit it but i'm telling you i'm reading right through this that is the bureaucracy of the rules of engagement of sending soldiers to war and then not letting them open fire on people without asking six other people for permission. That was a big complaint in Vietnam. It's still a big complaint to our soldiers today. And I'm, I saw that and I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what they're talking about. Here. Yep. But actually, uh, to clarify a little bit though, but the, the weapons that they actually took were the, um, the more highly uh, bullets that would penetrate. They let them still have uh, like handguns, a shotgun and the flame units. But yeah, they took uh, basically their heavy weapons away, such as the pulse rifles and the uh, smart guns. And, you know, those are, I mean, that's taken 90% of their firepower away. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've, you've basically given them, you know, good rocks to throw at things now at this point. So, cause, and I, but I liked it though, because it, now you've even, you've even, even the odds even more. You know, so so now they just can't go in and start wiping everything out because if they do, there's consequences to it. Or is there? I mean, we'll get to that in a minute, I guess. Well, then they come upon some of the colonists and they see this one woman cocooned up. And I guess is that what she's done, Nick? I mean, how would you describe how she's hanging on the wall? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, she's a c- cocooned down there. I mean, yeah, I think it's. Kind of actually a little neat thing that they added to the uh, alien lore is, you know, we obviously know about the eggs and the face hugger, and it makes sense that, you know, these things would collect the people or their hosts and basically cocoon them right in front of an egg. I mean, it makes sense. I just think this whole thing is just, ad- it's adding so much tension, even for, you're not even seen an alien yet, and it's just like they're walking into it, and you as the audience, you know what's happening, and they kind of understand a little bit, and then also like, they take away their safety net of the weapons, and now they're going to throw them straight into it with the um, chest burster scene. And, I mean, I guess when you want to learn how to swim, you throw your kid right in the pool, and are you going to learn these guys how to, how to you know, deal with the thing? They send them in the worst possible thing you could witness right away, and that's, you know, a helpless person getting their insides ripped out by a chest burster. <laughs> Right, and they flame the thing up, of course, and it squeals, and they, they kill it, which is really just creepy looking. This didn't, even now, watching this, oh, it's so weird. But they do that, and then then I love how they're all looking around, and they start catching all this movement, and they're like, well, what's moving? Well, it ain't us. Well, what is it? And then I love that one woman that turns the corner, and in the background, if you're staring at the wall, you can go, is that what I think it is? And then it uncurls, and it's one of the aliens. This is one of the best reveals in the whole thing. Yep. I mean, even after they killed that original, the first uh, chestburster, you can see all signs they're all unnerved. 
they're all like, you know, turning around, they're all freaking out. And then all of a sudden their motion detectors start going off and they start freaking out because it's like, okay, we just saw something we've never seen before. We're in, and we have no weapons and a pawn, a pawn, what are we going to do? You know? Right. And they're all radioing back to Gorman and he doesn't know what to tell them to do. And they're all just kind of standing there. And then these things start coming out of the walls at them. Like we said, they're taking them up and people are yelling and screaming. And that's when Vasquez reveals that, oh, I just acted like I gave you my power supply. I had another one tucked over here. And she opens fire in the place you're not supposed to open fire at. Now, my question here is real quick. I thought opening fire in there would start an explosion. I took it as something that's going to happen later in the movie as it's going to start a chain reaction. Not instantaneous, but basically... uh they're going to screw up some of the heating or cooling systems on there and oh, adios muchachos. Okay. And I, we'll get to that later about what I think, you know, transpired from her breaking the uh, firing quarantine law, you know. Well, and she's not the only one. Everybody starts loading up at that point and, and throwing stuff out. But the guy that was tasked to hold all of the ammo gets caught up by one of the aliens, and he's also holding a flamethrower and basically blows up all of the ammo and them and, and a couple of other Marines and a couple of aliens at the same time. So everything has just fallen apart. I mean, they've been completely demolished in this three-minute scene. They they go in there all big and bad, and, man, they run out of there like a bunch of kids. Yeah, they got to try to make their way out, and Gorman's sitting there in the APC, just sitting there, mouth open, not knowing what to do. He has no idea what's going on. He has no idea what to do. He's not paying attention to Ripley. Burke, you know, he's not doing any help, and finally Ripley just runs to the front of the APC and drives right into the nest full blast, and Gorman trying to basically self, you know, preserve himself, tries to attack Ripley, trying to get her to stop from driving it. And luckily, I guess, you know, probably the only time we can say this in the movie, Burke kind of saves the day by ripping Gorman off of her. And yeah, she breaks into the nest and saves those rest of the Marines, which happens to only be three of them at this point. There was four, but Drake got killed right before he got to the APC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, the, here's the thing about, about that whole bit is... I mean, I love all the alien attack moments. You know, they, I mean, they're coming out of everywhere, and you, you feel totally surrounded by this, right? And even in retaliation, remember what we talked about before? It's like, well, if the facehugger has acid for blood, does the alien have acid for blood? Well, the, in James Cameron's mind, that is an emphatic yes, because every time they shoot one of these things, that crap sprays on them, yeah. and it starts melting through the armor. That's yeah. what kills Drake. Right, he gets burns all over right his face. Through. He basically yep. burns through his skull. I mean, how 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 awful is that, right? So even it, it, when you're taking them out, they're still they have a way to kill you. And I thought it was actually kind of cool and eerie that as they're leaving, they're out, they're basically out of the nest almost, and there's still aliens at the front of the nest. So they were there the entire time, and it just makes you you know. I think it's just adding so much more to the mythology. I know some people complain about them, you know, turning them into insects, but I like that they have almost like a hive mind that it's like they're watching these people come in and it's like, we're not, we're not going to attack them right away. We're going to let them get in there because what's the point? What's the point of attacking them before they get in the nest? Let them get in the nest. That is one of the three big things I would say James Cameron adds to this series. And, and I'll, the other two I'll, I'll call out when we get to them in this film. But the idea that these are a hive mentality, like you say, these, these things work like instinctual insects. Yeah, and, and, and it's like people know, like I said, people complain about that aspect, but I think that's great. I mean, what other organism is perfect as an insect? I mean, it's basically got what? 
one one purpose, and that's the you know evolution or survival of its own species. But, and I particularly mean, I, when you think of like ants and bees, you yeah, know, those, I mean, those I be the I ones mean, that you think of. It doesn't have doesn't have personalities. They don't have you know careers and jobs. It was like protect the queen and breed. Those are the only two things it needs to do, and that's the only thing the perfect organism would do. And I just think that taking it taking it to the next step of it you know comparing it to an insect that is a neat mentality and i think you brought up something cool they've been there the whole time so what were they waiting on were they just hoping well maybe they'll just walk out of here and go away that's another thing that they've kept from the ridley is that the alien is not in attack mode the alien is a defensive reactionary organism it doesn't really necessarily think through this stuff it's not plotting stuff out it just does things when it gets in the right situation and i like that they they've held on to that still because the worst thing is when you start giving the killing thing in a horror movie too much motive you know what i mean like when i when jason gets hit in the face by someone then then he must go kill them then eh, now we're getting a little bit much into it right yeah. but the fact that these things still react to what's going on around them and to the stimulus around them is what I like. And what really brought them out, that they killed the chestburster. Oh, oh, I don't think so. You know, you walk into my neighborhood and kill one of my kids, I don't think so. And that's exactly what happens in there. And they, I mean, the Marines get totally annihilated in one scene, basically. And they're down to limited weapons, limited numbers, and, and the ones that did survive are emotionally and physically scarred. And, yeah, I think even the escape scene is actually kind of cool because... You get a couple of really kind of neat alien deaths in here with, you know, them trying to shut the door and the alien, you know, reaches in with his claws and is ripping open the door and Hicks grabs a shotgun and shoves it in its mouth and blows its head off. And It's a shot Cameron would use again because if anybody's seen Terminator 2 has seen Robert Patrick get his silver claws in the elevator and start to open it and Arnold just levels the shotgun at him and blows his head in half, right? Good Before call, it, to, good to call. I've, later. I've, I've never yeah. even realized that until no, now. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, every time I've seen Terminator 2, I'm like, I saw that. It was in Aliens. So, I mean, yeah, that there's almost exactly Exactly the same shot. Well, even in the deleted scene out here where they're talking like, takes two weeks to get an answer and always the answer is don't ask. Well, they say the same thing in Terminator 2. And, and I love the aftermath of all this. They finally get out and they basically, Ripley's blown the <laughs> the car, <laughs> she's blown the axle out of the car and they're just driving across the nothing wasteland and they're trying to slow down and they, they try to regroup inside of the ACP. Gorman got a concussion because he got knocked out when something fell on top of him, so he's out of it. Uh, Hudson, Vasquez, and... Uh, uh, Hicks are all a mess right now and trying to keep calm and there's Burke sitting over there and then you got Newt and Ripley and they're trying to figure out what are we going to do and I love the whole thing here where it, Ripley's like yep blow it up now she's she's learned from her mistakes I mean she's a character that's evolving and stuff and she realizes that this is the exact same situation we're confronted with this thing what's the best thing and get the hell out of here and blow it up that's the only way to take care of this what else is there to do because she has seen that work out before. After we've tried to fight this, and it all just wound up being me, and we nuked it anyway, so let's just do it now. This is the only way to be sure. But right after Ripley says that, of course, Burke bumps in and goes, you know, none of us have the authority to, you know, arbitrarily exterminate this species. And, you know, they just kind of laugh at him like, screw 
screw you, man. Who are you to freaking say that? Oh, that. And when the Marines say that, and then you know, he's talking about how much money it costs, and Ripley's like, well, they can bill me. <laughs> you know? And I love that line you know, there that in all that. And what ultimately comes down to it is that with Gorman out of commission and Apone dead and or allegedly dead and all this other stuff, Hicks is the one in charge because this is a military operation. So Ripley says, well, Hicks, it's your call. And, H- and Hicks echoes what she says. Yep, we nuked the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. You know, fi- fi- finally someone's listening to you. you yeah, exactly. Which is there. why you it's... like, it's why you're supposed to like Hicks, is that you get that he would be the guy that would listen. And especially after just seeing all that carnage, oh, hell, I don't want to go back in there. Do you? You know, he knows better. What are they going to do? Well, and it's right after, too, Burke insults him. He calls him a grunt and stuff, and he's looking at him. It's like, nah, you know, some maybe a couple other action guys would knock him out or, you know, strangle him or push him up against the door. He just kind of looks at him. He's like, I can get you where it hurts. Yeah, we're going to blow this whole thing up. Let's get well, out of here. Well, I, I never exactly. even took it as that. I I think he, you know, most of the grunts I know that are in the military, they kind of take that as a compliment. They're like, yeah, whatever. But he knows that, look, I know what I'm talking about, and you're just a suit, and in a suit and a really bad plaid shirt. So just sit down, you know, and, and he's going to go with the experience because he knows, Ripley knows what she's talking about. You know, he's already established that this woman will do what she says, and everything she has said up to this point has been exactly right. In fact, it's 20 times worse, so screw this. We're out of here. And and I I like it. And they get back to, to Bishop, and they start talking about you know what they're going to do and they say well we gotta we gotta get help so they radio for the drop ship to come get them and with the, you're like okay here comes the cavalry right and they load out the missiles and all this but the dude running on the drop ship puts his hand down on the elevator and what does he come up with goo and you're like well they're dead <laughs> i mean you just know it immediately there's ky jelly on the ship we know what's there <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, this isn't the love boat. So clearly this is a bad time to be having that around. And I love how the alien attacks the pilot, though. You know, I mean, she, I mean, he figures out how to open the door on her, which I'm like, wow, now that's kind of neat. That's different. We've never seen that happen before. Yeah. But then again, these things have been living in this complex for so long. Maybe they picked up a few things. I mean, I, as much as you say, you know, I've been saying like they're like insects. They're not dumb. These things aren't mindless creatures. I mean, they're, they're adaptive creatures. Yeah, they adapt to, right. to to stimuli, and it, the stimuli is she's yelling at the guy on the radio to get up into the cockpit, and so the alien would be like, "Oh, that's where the other one is. Okay, I'll go over there. What opens this? Probably that red thing." And then, oh, <laughs> and that's that's it. And it crashes, and boom, there goes your ride home. Right. And not only that, it crashes into part of the processor. Right. So inside of 12 minutes, we've had two major explosions near the thing that doesn't need to have major explosions near it. <laughs> nice world building, by the way. <laughs> you know? Building better worlds. But we can't build a wall around the atmospheric nuclear reactor. So. <laughs> Just say it. Just say so. Well, they, pr- they probably never thought there'd be drop ships, drop ships crashing into I'm it. I'm sure it wasn't know, part of the plan. You're right. You know, you know, people running in there with you know pulse rifles and shooting at the core. You know, <laughs> Nick, Nick, you were an engineer. You know, do you guys not think this stuff out? Alien problem? Come on. Well, I bring it up in all. I bring it up in a lot of meetings, but they usually kick me out of those ones. <laughs> Well, anyway, the whole point is is that much like what we've had to do with Ripley earlier, we have to strand this group. And that's when it's revealed that and something Hicks knew that nobody else knew, that you assume Gorman probably knew, knows, but he's knocked out. They're not going to be listed overdue for how long? 17 days. <laughs> wow. 
that's a lot. I mean, that's a long, considering how long it probably took them to get out there, that they're not going to be around in 17 days. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, they're screwed at this point. They're just like, you know, what do you do with this? What do you do right now? I mean, you have no way of getting off the planet. You have, you know, no rescue and hope. What do you do? And then you got Newt going. They mostly come at night, mostly. So it's kind oh, of like, yeah, yeah that it's, creepy line. it's getting dark again. And, you know, we, <laughs> we got to figure something out quick. So what do they do? They head back to operations. The pretty much the only quote unquote secure place on the planet and the uh, planet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, back where they, they had Bishop. And that's when he says, well, I could, you know, I can radio or remote fly the um, other uh, dropship from the Sulaco down here, but it'll take me a while to get to the other end of the complex and get the antenna lined up. I mean, I like the fact that all that stuff takes time. It's like he can't just go, well, let me pull on my iPhone and go, okay. You know, I mean, I, I like that there's technical wizardry to this. I mean, you can use all this great stuff, but it takes time to mobilize this stuff. And it makes sense that he would volunteer to go do that. He's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not alive anyways. And I have no delusions about being alive. So whatever, it's not going to attack me probably. So I'm just going to go and do the job. And I love how they, they keep up with that, but the only place they can be is in that little complex. But how secure is it, Nick? I mean, everybody that lived in there got taken out of there. Some people in mid donut, for goodness' sakes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, but it's the only thing they got, unless you know they want to make this into a, a B movie. Then they could go and uh, go <laughs> run over to the derelict ship and pilot that out of the scene there. But well, if this was directed by Brad Ratner, that would have already happened twice. But but if it, no, the derelict would have transformed into something else. That was Michael Bay's film. But anyway, um, <laughs> we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. But I like all the the setup here, though. The fact that they they try to feel like they're secure, and the whole bit is that Ripley's trying to get Newt to lay down. She's like turns into mother all of a sudden which is a different role for her this is we saw glimpses of it earlier but now we're really starting to see it yeah but even before that though I, when they finally get back into the compound and everything they start discussing i mean that's the main thing is how the hell are we going to keep ourselves secure so they basically decide to just rebarricade the broken you know areas that the aliens got through and then they got some pretty badass uh sentry guns that they uh got off the drop ship that crashed and they set those at a couple of the entrances and they're just going to hope for the best. I mean, right. Because- they're going to, they're going to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And that's also when they get into this whole discussion about where are all these eggs? And this is the, you know, the, the first discussion of where this may be coming from. And we, you know, said in the plot summary, it comes from the alien queen. And that's the second, thing that James Cameron added to this alien franchise that they will continue with forever through the rest of them. I I don't know that it'll be in Prometheus, but it's in the rest of the ones we're reviewing. I know. And they're going to talk about that over and over again, this idea of the queen, the queen bee, the queen ant, whatever you want to call it. And I don't know. I I mean, what do you think at at that whole speculation bit? I mean, is that what you were thinking? Uh, Before seeing this movie, I would, I, had no idea i mean it's always just it was kind of one of those you know did those space jockeys make them what was it and stuff and i know really had that deleted scene which i think was kind of stupid but i think adding the whole queen element to it is just a really awesome aspect i mean besides the overall design of the queen it makes sense i mean you're going to want the species if they're the perfect organism are going to want their reproductive process to be streamlined and 
what a better way than just to have this queen pumping out thousands of eggs that are going to make thousands of little baby chestbursters. Well, like we said before, it makes no sense to have to have two people to propagate your your series or your, your species, right? That's not terribly efficient. This seems a lot more efficient. And, a, and again, I'm glad that that did get cut out of that and was never shown because had that been in there, this would have been one of those great retcons. You know, the, how, how are we going to get around that? But, you know, and, and it's just another piece of the alien life cycle. But the whole point is that you're setting the audience up for there's something else out there that we haven't seen yet. And I think it's that's even uh, something Bishop says is something we hadn't seen yet. You know, and so they're trying to figure out what to do while all, you know, they're waiting on him to get everything ready to go and get the drop ship. And, uh, you know, they're looking around and they, they do kind of a weapons check and they don't really have a whole lot of any of that laying around. And they, they've got Vasquez and Hudson, who are not exactly the best of friends, are now on perimeter duty. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got this ragtag group of people that are all just worn out trying to survive. And in the middle of that, you've got this little girl who has survived longer than any of them did. You know, Ripley's kind of trying to moralize everybody there by saying, you know, this little girl survived, you know, you know, they're talking about 17 days. She survived longer than that on her own. You know, there's no reason we can't do this. And, you know, then after that, they go and they set up, you know, their sentry guns and stuff, which will, you know, lead to another, you know, uh, to a deleted scene that was added back in for the director's cut, which I think is kind of cool. But then, you know, after, you know, talking to the Marines and stuff and everything, she puts, you know, Newt to bed. And I think you have a little sweet little exchange between them. And you can kind of tell that there's a little bit more to them than, you know, just a little girl and a, and a woman is that, Newt's almost finding a surrogate mother in Ripley, and, you know, Ripley's kind of finding a reason to fight. You know, she's finding a reason to go on. She's finding the surrogate daughter, the replacement daughter, the one she lost, you know, yep. and then she even comes up with that later, you know. But now you talk about these sentry guns. Now, that's something that's only in the director's cut, the, the scenes where they set those up and then where they go off, too. But I'm with you. I kind of like them. I, I think it's neat that they had these things. And when they go off, man, I mean, they, they empty rounds fast. Yep. I got a pretty nice surround sound system at my house. And, uh, when I was watching this and it was cranking, it's like, wow, man, those sound effects are freaking awesome in there. And they are. When, yeah. when, when, when they're pounding, I mean, they, Cameron, you know, was kind of saving some money with this, obviously, because you can kind of see they were using some shots earlier in the film when the aliens are getting blown up by the Marines and the nest. They're kind of reusing those in this, uh, sentry gun scene, but it's, it's still freaking awesome, man. I like just the little yellow LED or LCD screen that Hicks has got, and they're watching the countdown go down. Of the ammo, you know, just you see it like 500, 400, 300, 200, 100. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like you say, it's, it's one of those countdown things. It gives you that computer screen countdown and stuff, and that's all part of it. And then it's after that scene, that which is cut, like I said, out of the theatrical, that you get the news that the, the station's going to blow. You know, that's and that is going to happen. They never specifically state why the reactor is going to blow. And that's why I kind of said, you know, even without the dropship crashing, I think what Vasquez and Drake did in there possibly caused that. And if not, then the dropship caused it or maybe it was both of them. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but, I, uh, I think it's a combination of all of the stuff. And I mean, think about it, too. Something like that, like a power plant, again, I go back to you know my dad working in power plants and stuff. You have to have people working that thing around the clock. And if it's been yeah, you know a few days, a couple weeks, whatever, since anybody's done any maintenance, I'm pretty sure the aliens hadn't figured out how to do that. You know, so 
it maybe it's failing on its own. I don't Vis- know. Visions of going in there with the aliens with hard hats <laughs> working in the. I'm sure that is a robot chicken skit waiting to happen somewhere down the line. But but no, really, I mean that's that's the whole bit is that no that's the ticking time bomb for if it wasn't enough to have the aliens coming after them, now they really got one. They got to get off this planet, you know, fast. So Bishop, you got to go and get the ship like now because we can't wait on this thing. Yeah, and actually that's when they uh, decide, you know, Bishop decides, yeah, I gotta, I'll got i go do it. I'm the only one qualified to remote pilot the ship, and really he's the only one that can safely go out there without, you know, an alien coming after him. And actually in a deleted scene, or not even a deleted scene, it was a scripted scene, it was never filmed, was when he's in the uh, big giant electrical conduit making his way outside, actually, an alien actually is in there who goes, you know, face-to-face with... Uh, bishop and it just looks at him and scampers off showing that you know these things you know obviously can sense what's human or what's alive and what's not and just no bishop being no use to it and like we've said at this point i mean we talked about last time are they using humans for food or not clearly i think the answer to that in at least in the cameron world is that no they're using them for cocoons and so it would come on something like bishop and be like well that's useless you know so because it doesn't have anything to sustain life you know his life support system is a is mechanized is mechanized. It's not human, so it can't do any good. So I'm almost glad they didn't show that. Though that would have been a little weird, you know, because it'd been like then you would have wondered is Bishop in cahoots with the aliens? You know, I mean that would have been kind of confusing. So did he just you know Lance Henriksen and his weird stare you know communicate with? Them? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but. But I, lo- I love the whole plan, though, and how they how they get him down there. And again, it's the I love movies that put me in claustrophobia. You know, he's got to crawl through that conduit, and it's I mean, it's nothing. But he's just acting like, "Yep, no big deal, got it." And I would be freaking out, man. Yeah, I'm claustrophobic as it is. I have trouble with closed spaces, and I would have got about two feet before I would have started kicking around and stuff, screaming to have someone get me out. But yeah, that's, uh, I, but I like the way, like, throughout the, you know, the next, like, 15, 20 minutes of the movie, they kind of keep on cutting back to him in there, and they're showing him, you know, shouldering his way through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just, he's just crawling through. So, then we get our second set of sentry guns going off, and this is another thing that got cut in the theatrical, but the whole point is that the aliens are figuring out at how to waste all the ammo, it seems like, or they're drawing all the fire in the wrong direction. I don't know. I mean, how did you read all this stuff? I read it as they were just running at it blindly and the things were taking them out. And luckily that they decided to cease going that way because, you know, they were just getting massacred in that hallway and they just stopped going. They stopped going there. And luckily, you know, there was, they didn't realize that there was only 10 rounds left of the last sentry gun. Yeah. But, you know, the, the point is that these things, there's so many of them, they can take those kind of casualties. Yeah, yeah. Hudson even says, Hudson even says, he goes, they're wall to wall in there. I mean, those things were coming at them as a force. So yeah, and and that again is back to the allegory of the Vietnam War. You, we couldn't understand the idea of suicide bombers and people running at us in trench warfare and just the waves and waves of attack of people getting mowed down and mowed down and they just keep coming because it would the expendable force that just has no other reason but to fight you and just keeps coming at you and won't stop. Well, that that can be really demoralizing to you no matter what kind of technology you've got because you're like I can't shoot all these people. I don't have I can't shoot all these aliens. I don't have enough weapons to do it and literally here they're running out of their i mean those are their biggest guns and they're gone luckily it holds them off for the time being and you know they kind of go back to waiting now for bishop to yeah get over to the satellite dish and you know link up with the drop ship and 
I guess I think uh, one of the scenes that I really like though is right after that as uh, Ripley gets trained by Hicks on how to use the you know the uh, the pulse rifle, right? And you know they kind of go over everything and you know he's like you know she's like oh you know what's this thing underneath because the pulse rifles have a grenade launcher and you know he's like ah you don't need to know that and she's like come on you started to show me the whole thing and then then right after that you know she's walking with the gun you know the gun on the shoulder or whatever and. Oak walks Gorman with the uh, bandage on his head, and he's, like, ready to apologize to Ripley, and Ripley's, like, save it, and she walks right by him. Oh, yeah, I mean, she's in total protector mode at this point, and you know where she's going. She's going back to check on Newt, and she lays the gun on the bed, and, and you know, she laid Newt on the bed, and Newt, of course, being survival girl, is under the bed, is on the floor. So that's where Ripley finds her, and she lays down there with her, you know, and they're going to take a little nap, but... That's interrupted pretty quickly by what may be the the best scene in the movie. Yeah, it's if not the best, it's the most intense. I mean, even today, I mean, it's still watching it. I mean, you barely even see the face hugger, and it's still you know you're you're tense watching it. And I mean, to set it up. I mean, Ripley and Newt wake up, and Ripley sees that the two containers holding the two live face huggers are spilt over on the floor. And she reaches up to grab her pulse rifle, and it's gone. Right. And so, so it's, you, you know, it's obviously a setup, and it's like, well, you know, who did it? I mean, you you could kind of figure out who's the only slime ball there with them. And when they kind of make their way over to the camera, and, you know, she's, ra- you know, waving her arms, and they're going, Hicks, 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 pans back over to the uh, operations room, and there's Burke watching her, and he turns off the camera. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like when nobody's looking, he just turns it off like, okay, you know, and it's it's obvious he knows what, it, it, you know, or it's obvious what his motive is trying to do. He's trying to get the alien back, right? But Ripley being the resourceful person figures out to grab her trusty cigarette lighter that we didn't know she had. And, and oh, she light, smokes. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but we hadn't seen her do it on the planet. But but anyway, she grabs her lighter and she lights the, the fire extinguisher. And, of course, that sets off an alarm and that sends Vasquez, Hicks, Gorman, and, and uh, uh, Hudson down there to investigate. And they see what's going down in there. And that's basically Ripley is got one of these things that's tried it's basically got its tail around her neck and she's trying to fight it off newt's trying to get away from one that's crawling after her and is sort of pinned under some of the furniture in there and you know they're trying to come up with ways to break the glass and it it takes them a minute to do it but then of course they're able to charge in and they they blow away the the facehuggers but it's a really intense scene mm-hmm. yeah definitely and they kind of set it up a little bit more we kind of glossed over it but why burke would do this is not once, but twice, Ripley kind of, you know, was in his face about his intentions there. Oh, excuse me. But uh, the first time being, you know, when they get back to the colony, I mean, after the whole fiasco happened in the nest, she's going through the colonist transcripts, and she finds out that Burke was the one who indeed sent the colonists out to the derelict spaceship. It wasn't Waylon yutani that did it. It wasn't, you know, Van Leeuwen. He didn't send him out there. It was Burke. So that answers a question earlier that they didn't know anything. Burke heard about it from her in that debrief, and then he's the one that came up with this whole bit. I still think they knew about it. I don't think they were ready to go after it, but I think that Burke did this all on his own and sent that sent the um the colonists out to go get it. And Ripley tells him, she goes, "They're gonna find out about this." And he's like, "Well, who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna tell them about this?" And she's like, "I'm gonna tell them about this and stuff." And right away, you're like. 
you know, you could tell he's probably like, you know, that freaking bitch. You know, she's mad. Well, you know, the thing the thing is, and I in these two scenes with Paul Reiser, the one before this and then the one afterward, they're they're confronting him about what he's done or allegedly done to to her and Newt. I, I didn't think, you know, Paul Reiser is known to be a comedic actor. He was mad about you as his TV show, and I think everything else he's ever done is pretty, you know, he's light, and he, I've seen his stand-up. He's kind of funny. But he does some real dramatic stuff here, particularly that first scene where he's trying to explain his his point to her. And I'm going to tell you something, Nick. He's, he's pretty darn convincing. I mean, he comes off pr- like like a good salesperson. Oh, he's, he's so sleazy. He's just one of those guys where it's like, yeah, he's made him a, you know, he's screwed up, you know, whether or not he wants to admit it. And he's just trying to talk his way out of it. Well, but, but even not beyond being sleazy though, he, his logic, if from his point of view, makes total sense, and I think that's what what makes him not be so one dimensional. Like it's easy to play that as sleazy because the oh, guy he, is sleazy. Yeah, he's but, he's the ultimate capitalist. I mean, he sees yeah. this whole thing as a as a money venture. It's like there, you know, there's no exclusive rights for anybody if I if I would go and notify the company because they would send these people there and they're there, and I would make no money on this stuff. That's stupid. Come on and <laughs> talk about talk about. Um, Cameron Echoes in Titanic. There's a there's a character in there that wants to run the ship at the highest level, right? And in even in Avatar, you know, there's a guy that's trying to get the unobtainium, right? They, I mean, this is a repeated thing for him over and over. And so seeing this this time, I'm going, oh yeah, and it reminded me again of things I would see in the future. But I gotta tell you, Paul Reiser plays this so well. I mean, he really sells it for me, and I I I can't give the guy enough praise for it. And I'm not gonna. I mean, he's not the most perfect actor ever but this is a fantastic scene and i've always kind of wondered why he didn't get a little bit more dramatic roles because this to me was really convincing and even even there was another scene that we didn't really talk about but that was when ripley walks in on bishop and he's you know in looking at the facehuggers the dead facehuggers you know much in the way ash was looking at it and she's questioning him she's like you know you're going to discard that right and he's like no they're going to be saved and brought back you know to the bioweapons division, and she's like, what? And then she goes and confronts Burke about it, saying, you know, you're not taking those back. And right, right. away, he's like, oh, this is, these those, those things are worth multi-million dollars to the bioweapons division. And, you know, if you were smart, you you know, she's like insulting her. He's like, if you were smart, you would think like this too. And again, he's going back on exactly what he said in the beginning of the movie, where he's like, we're going to go out there to destroy him. We're not going to bring him back. We're not going to bring him back to study. And you can, you know, right, he shows his hands so early, but it's just like, it goes from showing his hands to now it's, you know, he just shows that he's just a vindictive, evil man. I mean, he's going to oh, yeah. basically murder a little girl just to make himself some money. I mean, exactly. I mean, that, that's his whole point. And that's what she starts talking about afterward is that there's no way he could get one of these things back through quarantine. So he would have to get us impregnated, if you will, and then, you know, take care of the other, you know, you guys' capsules, and then he can make up whatever story he liked on the way back. And and then when they got there and they were hatched, well, then they would have what they wanted anyway, you know. And that's and that's you know she's figured him out. And but I love how again in the middle of the explanation, the exposition scene, it gets interrupted because oh yeah, there's these thousands of aliens coming, you know. And we don't know why they're coming in. We just know they're coming in. Maybe they finally figured a way around the sentry guns, whatever. But all the lights go out. And I love Hudson's reaction here. It's like, how did they cut off the lights? How can they do that? Yeah, they're animals. But I, it, up until you know, up until that point, you almost kind of forgot about the threat outside. You're thinking, you know, you know freaking Burke, you know, grease him, man. You know, freaking you're hoping that, you know, Hicks, you know, breaks his neck or shoots him or whatever. Then all of a sudden the lights go out and you're like, 
oh yeah, there is a bigger threat. Right. It's it's the, again. It, it's we know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and then there's the outside threat. <laughs> and that then there's there's all those three sides converging here in the middle of this. And basically, they get overrun by these aliens. Like they're sitting there watching the countdown again. That's tension building. You know, really, Scott was able to do that in his film because it was an enclosed space and it was haunted house, right? Well, it's done here because we know that they're being attacked. They're under attack in some form or another. And they can't, there's nothing in front of them. It's not blown. Where is it? And finally, it's Hicks who looks up through the ceiling and you see those aliens crawling at him. And I got to tell you, man, that's still to this day, one of those scenes that just gets me. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You know, it's, it's just so alarming. And of course, man, then they just start unloading the, the guns. You know, everybody unloading the guns. Did you get that they just overlooked the ceiling? That, you know, they barricaded everything, but they didn't barricade above the barricades, and they, they didn't realize that there was a drop ceiling in this complex? Yeah, that is, a, that is a little bit of a plot hole, but go with it like this. They don't they don't. No, I don't, I don't a, think a it's a plot under, They don't really have an understanding of the whole complex. They're going by what they know how to do, and they would have never thought about cover the, the air ducts. No, I, I don't think it's a plot hole at all. I think that's just an honest oversight that they were like, holy crap, we didn't realize this place had a drop ceiling. I mean, that's something that, you know, you, you're, you're covering everything from, you know, B to Z, and then you forget about A. It's like, oh, man, we forgot about that. We we forgot to lock the doors before we left for vacation. I mean, that's just what it is. It's just this, the you, for, you remembered everything except for the one thing you're not, the most important thing, and it's... I, I, that's, that's, that's how I always saw it. And it was like, I even, that's how the, that's the reaction I get from like Hudson when they're like, they look up in the ceiling and they're like, oh my God, they're like, you know, almost like kicking themselves or like they're up there. But they don't have much time to feel bad about it because like I said, these things are coming out on them, man. And everybody starts fleeing except Hudson who goes down swinging. Gotta tell you, I, I did, I, when I saw this as a kid and even when I see it now, I know it's coming. I'm like, man, I don't want Hudson to go because he's talking so much trash and he's laying out so much firepower and they come and get him basically out of the floor. You know, and it's like, oh, the you know the the fun guy. We didn't want the fun guy to buy it, but of course he does. Of course he he's you know he's had the best lines of the movie the whole way anyway for the most part. So him going down swinging that I I kind of like it though because you think Hudson is this big talker and he's kind of a wuss, but actually no, when it comes down to it, he can fight and he he goes down you know with the ship. I mean he goes down fighting. Yeah, he started. In my opinion, he kind of started swinging a little wildly and stuff, and he forgot about what was going on around him and stuff and that's how they be able to get him on the floor but the thing i want to point out is can you believe there's only four aliens at a time in this scene because there was only four sh- suits made for the aliens and i mean just the, dir- the direction and this the way it's cut the way that you know they're always showing them coming through the ceiling and coming through the floor you never get a sense that there's only four in there i mean you feel like there's at least two dozen of them in there i, I want to bring this up now too because it's a good time to introduce this part of that is is cutting and direction you're right and design the other part is the score and james horner is an amazing composer and he and cameron didn't work together for a long time after this it wasn't until titanic that they got back together because they had a lot of fights over this i want to tell you though his score here is amazing and the way i mean it 
it sounds like it's pumping and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It adds so much to all these scenes and really to these attack scenes in particular. I always equate the, the feeling like there's more aliens coming with the fact that that orchestra is just banging in the background and it's just coming at you. And I watched this film, you know, on television and I also watched it on a computer with my headphones on. And I mean, I'm going to tell you both settings. I mean, that score just works. And I think that's half of it at least is you feel like the aliens are so imposing because the score's imposing. And this score has been used a lot. I mean, oh, every trailer uh, until Inception horns were existed, this is what you had. So, and uh, also, um, little little fact with that too is he only had a matter of days to write this score. Amazing, right? When you watch the production of this on the DVD, they talk about the score and basically how he was he had no time at all to write this stuff, and he somehow did it. I mean. I think he did it in a matter of a week. He wrote all the music to this movie. That's amazing. I mean, again, out of great adversity, sometimes comes amazing art. Which you can probably see why he was kind of mad at Cameron. He was like, you know, he busted his butt really bad to get it done, and he probably walked away going, I ain't ever working with that guy again, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they, they walked away from each other for a long time before they got back together. But it's part of what makes this all so imposing. Now, I got to tell you, my favorite, like, deaths, though, of any of the Marines are Vasquez and Gorman. I love the fact that they're both running down the, the air shafts and, and going and, or everybody's running and Vasquez gets hurt because she starts shooting these aliens in the ass. He gets all over her and Gorman goes back for her like a good lieutenant supposed to do. And he gets in there and he uses up all his rounds. And the last thing he's got is a grenade. And he's like, okay. And he flips the lid off of it. And they, you know, all grasp hands around it. And she's like, yeah, okay. I mean, I know she calls him an asshole at the end, but that's like a, you can tell that's a moment of respect that she finally shows this guy. And I I love that. I love that moment. It's just a little moment, but I I love the way that's done. And I want to point out too, um, What's kind of great about that tunnel scene when they're in the air shafts is um, the alien, it's just the way that Cameron shot it. It looks like it's almost spinning as it's crawling. It's not crawling like a normal, like a person is. I mean, the way that, you know, it's got those tubes on his backs and the arms. You can't tell what's his arms and what's the tube, but you can tell the things like rotating as it's crawling through. It's a real cool effect. Oh, it's amazing. It's a great camera work. Again, it, again, it just it makes you realize that these things are, are coming at you from every direction. They're, they're impossible. And that's actually why uh, Cameron, when he actually, you know, casted this movie, when he had people, you know, he casted people who were in gymnastics and, you know, to play the aliens. You know, it wasn't just, you know, for their looks, because you know, he understood that mostly that these people would be in the shadows, but he casted for what they could actually do in the suits which I think I think paid a lot, pays off, especially when you look at what happened in the nest and stuff, the way they were able to jump from wall to wall. That wasn't anything more than, you know, just a little simple wire, wire work. Yeah, but it, look, but it looks amazing when you've got the right people involved in it. You know, yeah, that's, definitely. that's the difference in this, these aliens versus the one in the last that moved kind of slow and deliberate. These are much faster. And they, maybe it lets you know that there may be inside of this you know, species, there may be different versions you know maybe there's workers and maybe there's fighters and maybe there's something laying all the eggs that we're going to get to in a minute you know there's all this stuff that you can start to think about but in the middle of all of this as as they're getting away newt falls down like this little rotating air shaft thing and ripley and hicks are trying to cut through metal to get to her you know because they have to unweld stuff and popping up behind her in one of those iconic moments again from this movie is one of the full suited aliens 
And by the time Ripley and Hicks get to her, all that's left is like her little doll head. You know, and so they they know she's been taken away. And that's when Ripley makes her final transformation. And this is the last thing that James Cameron added to the series. It's what he did with the character of Ripley, extending what happens for her at the end of Alien into this and turning her into what I call the prototype for what Sarah Connor is in T2. This determined fighter, um, not going to quit, going to keep her promise woman, you know, and she's from that moment, you know, in one moment she's sad and the next she's determined to like, let's go, let's get to the ship because I'm loading up and I'm going back to get the girl. And you can actually, even from the beginning of the movie, it's a complete transformation. Cause if you remember when a Pone and all them in the beginning of the, or in the middle of the movie were taken by the aliens, cause they weren't killed because there was Hudson and Hicks were like, their signals are low, but they're still alive. And right away, Ripley's like, you can't help them. They're being cocooned. You can't help them. She's telling them, you're not, you can't go back in there and get them. What are you going to do? But when it was new, she, <laughs> she changed her mind. I mean, yeah, it's a little girl and stuff like that. But I think it was, I think just basically it was her character changing, saying, you know what? I got to go in there and do this. Cause if I don't, this is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. I just can't up and leave. I got to go. I'm going down, you know, swinging, you know. And again, like you've asked several times, what else has she got to lose? You know, at this point, this is this is everything she's. Oh, it's 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 her daughter. Left. This is this yeah. is her surrogate daughter at this point. Yeah. And, you know, as a parent would do, it's like I'm gonna. My life is nothing compared to this kid's, and if I gotta, I'll do whatever I need to do. And if I die, you know what? So what? I love the scene where she starts arming up. You know, she's putting the guns together and she's locking and loading. And I, you know, every action movie's got this montage of people just needlessly loading ammunition into weapons and things like that. But I got to tell you at this point, I'm digging it. I'm loving it. I love that she goes in there and you get the little counter on how many bullets she's got. And she's got a little bit of flamethrower and you know, that's not infinite. You know, she's only got a little bit, but she's going in packing. And I, the whole arm up scene is just amazing. No, she needs a boomstick from Evil Dead. <laughs> I mean, really, at this point, that's about all she's got. And I love how she starts putting this this stuff together. Yeah, she grabs yeah. out the electrical tape and tapes it together. Yeah. And, of, and, and, of course, I mean, it's a little plot device, but, you know, Hicks got injured before this, and he's unable to help her. But but actually, I want to point out is in the original scriptment by Cameron, Hicks actually does go down into the nest with her. I kind of like it that he does, and I, I like that it's her going alone. That makes a lot more sense. But now in the director's cut, we do get a little breath here because they stop and they exchange first names with each other because everybody's gone by last names this whole movie, right? Mm -hmm. And it, Hicks turns around and tells her, my name's Dwayne, you know, and she says, well, my name's Ellen, you know, and that's the first time we get that, you know, that she had a name besides Ripley because that's all we've known her as, right? And just that little moment, I kind of like that. I almost wish that was back in the theatrical cut. It would have been a nice moment. Yeah, there's these little uh, little scenes like that that I think would have really, you know, helped, you know, just kind of, I don't know if it would help the movie, but it just, I, like you said in the beginning, at the end of the movie, it kind of helps it breathe a little bit because, at this point, we've been going about 20 minutes nonstop, you know, from the face hugger scene to them attacking, probably even longer than 20 minutes. And, you know, she's going to go right back in the nest. It kind of gives the uh, the audience a little bit of time to lower their pulse again. Yeah, I know. And I love it. And then we get Ripley going through the nest. I mean, this is amazing. This whole, all the set work here where she's going down into the levels of the processor and she gets into the nest and everything. I mean, this is just, oh, it's it looks like it's endless, you know, and you're just going, Oh my gosh, how many of these things can there be? 
The part I really like, though, is when she's in the elevator and she's, like, readying herself. I mean, she's, you know, taking off the jacket and putting on the, you know, the, I don't know what you would call that, the strap with the grenades on it and, you know, making sure the gun's all locked and loaded. And, you know, she pushes back her hair a little bit. And then the part I like is how she just closes her eyes and just breathes and just is, like, readying herself. You know, she's readying herself for the storm. It's like she's saying a little silent prayer before she goes into battle there. You know, that's, yeah, I mean, I, I like the whole bit, too. I mean, it's, it, it is just that last hero's moment before they have to go off into the, the abyss. And the, part, and the part that I, I don't and, think we actually mentioned was earlier in the movie, Hicks, when he was talking with Ripley, gave her, like, a little, it was almost, it looks like a watch. And then it has a little tracker yeah. that he was holding on to that would show him in meters how far away the watch was. But Ripley later gave it to Newt as kind of like a little, you know, I can, I'll can, i find you with this, kind of foreshadowing what was going to happen. And that's what she's using to track down Newt. And as she goes through the complex, she finds the watch laying on the ground and she just starts breaking down. Just like, she has no idea where, to, yeah, she has no idea where to go now. And it's like, you know, mind you, the uh, nuclear detonation now isn't in hours. We're talking like twenty minutes, so it's kind of like yeah, you're yeah, you're hearing the voice of of mother or whatever, Theo you know, doing that countdown again, and so she she doesn't have a lot of time. Bishop's already told her, look, you, you're gonna have to get back quickly because I can't I can't wait forever, and she just keeps on going, and sure enough, she does find Newt. Well, she she finds Newt luckily because. A facehugger hatches, and Newt's awake, and she screams when she hears it, and Ripley comes rushing over and blows away the facehugger and blows away a couple aliens and rescues Newt, and as she's making her way out, she kind of backs her way into a different part of the nest that the Marines were never in. And as she's looking over, she sees, I don't even know what you would call that, almost looks like an elephant trunk, the way it's kind of slurping it down, and yeah, it's the queen alien, and it's laying some eggs. And well, beyond that, you got the queen kind of sitting in this. I don't know what she's in. It's like this helmet or rest that she's in, and she comes out of it. The queen does, and it's this. I mean, the biggest, most massive alien you could possibly dream up. And to hear Cameron tell it, you know, him and Stan Winston drew the thing up on napkins, drinking cocktails on an airplane or something. But they just kept thinking about the biggest, baddest alien of all time. And if this is what we were thinking about, this is what's laying the eggs, it would have to be the biggest thing we've ever seen. And I got to tell you, man, it's still impressive to this day. It's amazing model work. And it's just a great concept above everything else that you're going to have these two queens, if you will, face off in the end of this thing. I mean, I almost, maybe I'm being a little overzealous here, but I almost compare this like the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, just as far as how it looks. I mean, this thing looks alive. I mean, just the the work that it does and just how the head extends out from another head to almost like another head the way it comes out. And just the way it's breathing, I mean, you can see like almost like the nostrils, the way that the air's coming out of it. It's a real, real big nose breather <laughs> the way it's breathing. But uh, it's just great, and it's not dumb either. I mean, this isn't just a mindless dumb animal. It's looking at Ripley and wondering what the hell's going on, and then she sees that Ripley isn't exactly a defenseless animal herself. That she's packing some heat with the flamethrower, and she demonstrates that. And then what does she do? She aims it right at the egg showing the queen that, you know what, don't don't screw around with me or I'll take these out. And the queen understands. And 
I just think that's just, it's just an awesome scene. I think that, you know, it's just showing the intellect of these things. And the queen looks over at the other aliens that are around the nest, you know, that are kind of starting to come in that they're going to take out Ripley. And she's looking at them and she's kind of like giving a little head nod to, you know, get the hell out of here. You know, <laughs> she's going to just let them be, just let them be. But one of the eggs opens up and Ripley gives that little head nod herself and <laughs> opens fire and lets out all the rages she's built up for these two movies on the nest. Yeah, 57 years of, of anger and pain come wailing out of that flamethrower and that pulse rifle, man. She empties 100 rounds down the range and, and lights it all up. And, I mean, basically destroys it to the point that the queen can't, it, it can't stand it and detaches herself from her egg sac and, you know, we assume gets away with it, right? You know, and it's, I, I love it though, man, because it's Ripley just taking charge and then her and Newt get the heck out of there because, you know, hey, the time, the clock is still ticking on the atmospheric processor to blow. And she figures, well, I've done enough damage here now. This queen ain't going nowhere. And she, she bails. And I, I love that whole scene though. It's one of the great action scenes. And it's, it's funny if, if you know all the, the, um, extended stuff. You know, Sigourney Weaver is one of these people that hates guns, no guns, anti-guns, or whatever. But she looks awesome holding that thing and just unloading it. I mean, it, it's it's great. She said during the making of it too, like you know, she hates guns, but when she's firing it, she's like, I can see why people like firing these because she's like, it's it's empowering almost in a way, and you know, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can tell. I mean, she you know, she maybe she didn't doesn't like guns, but just the way that, you know, the way she acted with it, I mean, it was spectacular. I mean, when she's letting go on that nest and shooting everything and blowing everything away and pumping the grenade launcher, I mean, just the look on her face, I mean, you can tell what she's doing. Yeah. She's just releasing all that anger and just taking it out on them, and it's it's justified. <laughs> I mean, without, without saying it, it's completely justified. And then to add even more tension, her and Newt get back to the platform and Bishop's nowhere to be found. And she's like, Oh, you know, and so she thinks, well, we're going to die here when this thing blows. And then the elevator, which has gone back to where it came from, comes back up. And who's on it? But the queen. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. Now it just got worse. And, and, and for the nitpickers out there, it wasn't that the alien queen actually operated the elevator. If you actually watch the scene closely with Ripley and Newt when they get in the elevator, they didn't hit any buttons either. It automatically went back up to the top level. It's just probably an automatic setting on the elevators. Queen went in, went up to the top. So no, the queen didn't operate it. She didn't sit there with her finger and hit top floor. At, th at this point in the movie, I don't even care. I'm going with it. I'm like, oh, that just made it. The, the exploding power plant is not enough. My ride has left is not enough. Now I got this thing to deal with too. But of course, Bishop shows up and is able to you know get them on the the drop ship. They get away, and you assume they they're getting away, right? Because he's flying away, and I mean, the, again, that music is da da da, you know, all behind them, and they just get out of the atmosphere when the processor detonates and i mean talk about nuke the site from orbit that was an impressive planetary explosion yep you can see the mushroom cloud and everything it's a very cool effect but actually even before that though the part that you gotta you know that you want to pay attention to is when the ex one of the explosions happened inside there it kind of the shockwave kind of knocks the drop ship back towards the platform and some of the landing gear gets caught in some of the the debris on the ground so there's always something just to kind of point out a little bit to what happens in a little bit but yeah it's 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 a it's a cool scene and yeah they you know hollywood typical movie they barely get out of there but it's still cool it's very but cool. just like the first alien we've got to have the fourth act 
you know, we get back to the Sulaco and Bishop's going, hey, I'm sorry, I did that platform was unstable. I had to get off of it. Didn't mean to scare you. And, you know, Ripley's like, no, nah, it's cool. We're good. And then out of freaking nowhere, he just convulses and starts to churn. And you're like, there's no way Bishop has a face hugger in him. Nope. It's just the alien queen's tail going straight through him. Because like you pointed out, Nick, the alien took that opportunity to climb up in the freaking landing gear. <laughs> And I'm going to tell you, it's an amazing looking effect when he starts just writhing and spewing that milk out everywhere. And when she picks him up, the queen, and just rips him into two pieces and tosses him. I was like, now that, now it is on. <laughs> and, you know, Hicks is useless because he's drugged on, you know, pain medication. So it's her and Newt versus the queen again. And, you know, the point all things that the. To bring that, let me do that over again. The point out what we've been bringing up: the alien is the ultimate survivor. It's the ultimate adapter, and you know the thing jumped on top the landing gear. I mean, maybe a little bit far fetched that something that big got on that ship, but it's it's just too cool. You gotta you got you gotta forgive it. You gotta look past it. I mean, if you're, go- if you're going with the ride here, though, this is a great setup and a great shock moment. You know, because you want that big face off. You've already had the semi face off, but you really want. Ripley to get a hold of the queen. So how do how do you make that happen, Nick? I mean, how do you manufacture a way where Ripley can actually do combat with the queen? You go back to the first act and remember the thing Ripley got a hold of before when she made herself useful, the loader. She goes after the loader. And I, I, I'm going to tell you, I thought for years that thing was real. I don't know why we don't have those now. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very cool. It evens the score and it brings us to the climax, which is mother versus mother. Yeah. I mean... Basically, the Ripley just took away the Queen's babies, and for all intents and purposes, that species took away Ripley's first daughter, her first family, her first life. So it's kind of like you got the ultimate grudge match in the universe. Yeah, and I mean, they go at each other for several minutes. I mean, it's a good three or four minute fight here. And I got to tell you, great work here. Great model work, great set work. And again, the way it's all cut together and the alien's teeth are getting close and that Ripley's getting shots in and they're going back and forth. I I love this fight. It's amazing. And I I just think it looks looks great. But I got to tell you, Nick, we get we've now hit a bump in the road. I think I've praised this as much as I possibly can. We finally get to something that I see Ripley key in something and it opens up a door in the floor. And I'm like, they're going for the airlock. And sure enough, they both get in this fight and she's trying to drive the queen toward the airlock. And they both get drugged down in there. And then, you know, Ripley's got to get out and open up the door to space. Now, this I got questions about. How can you open up a door to the vacuum of space and not be sucked out into it yourself? Got a really strong elbow. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I'm at the end of the first alien again. where There's really no answer to this, and it's just a question that will linger with me forever. But, I mean, is this satisfying how how it ends? Because she opens the airlock, and basically the alien queen gets sucked out into space, and through sheer force of will, Ripley climbs up through the the hole in the floor and shuts the door again. Yeah, I don't really know much about the way that it would actually work. I mean, I'm sure someone out there does and everything, but it is a little bit far-fetched. But like you were saying with the last movie, it's kind of like the barrel in the shark's mouth. You know, it's kind of like everything so far has been, you know, 
relatively grounded that you got to go with. Well, yeah. Really, at this at this point, what other way is there to get rid of this alien? You can't just blow it up with all the acid for blood with an alien that big and burn through the. Floor. Oh yeah, I mean, the whole ship would be toast. You're right. Yeah, she can't blow it up. She can't burn it or anything. So the only solution is to throw it out into space. It's just I don't know. I, that, again, I'm picking at something. And I'm admitting that I'm picking at it. I, when I'm watching this movie, Nick, and I'm just watching it to watch it, I don't I don't think about any of that. I don't care. You know, I'm I'm going with it, and I want Ripley to climb up those those ladders and get out, and I want her Nike to go flying off into space with the alien's hand. I mean, I, I guess the way they could have rewrote it is maybe that she fell down in there with it, and she climbed up the ladder, and then the alien queen was, you know, getting out and almost out by the time, and, you know, Ripley barely shut that top one before the alien was able to get out and then opened up the bottom, sh- you know, airlock and shot it out, but... He kind of adds a little bit more drama with, you know, the whole ship, you know, basically being sucked in and, oh, my God, what's going to happen to Newt? And then, you know, Bishop saves her, you know, with his kung fu grip and everything. You know? Yeah, I did like that. The, the, the half of the top half of Bishop is still aware enough to be able to grab Newt as she's sliding by on the floor and, and he's holding on to her while he's holding the grate. And according to Alien 3, I guess his lower half survived. Well, we're going we're gonna to come back to that. We'll, we'll get that next time. But, you know, that is that is it. That is the actual ending. Everybody, you know, the, the three of them are, are back up there on the top. And then we get back to the Sulaco into the hypersleep chambers. And we see Bishop is all in his, like he's been bagged together and I guess shut down for the trip. And Hicks is all bandaged up and laying in his. And then Ripley and Newt are freshly washed and ready to lay down. And time to dream. Why the hell would you want to dream after that? <laughs> I think maybe the whole point is that, and if you want to believe that this was supposed to be, you know, the the wrap, and James Cameron certainly looked at it as, well, I, I'm going to wrap this story up for Ripley here, is that she's come full circle now. She's back to, she, she's not the same person as she was, but she's regained what she felt like she had lost. She has a purpose in life. She has someone to care about that also cares about her. And she's made herself, she's made peace with the alien. And Hey, for all we know, Nick, all of the aliens are now either dead or floating out in space, you know, cause she blew that planet to bits and the one she blew out of the airlock on the Stromo. And then this queen are now floating through the, the cosmos somewhere. <laughs> so there's a reason to feel like there's some peace to it. And I like it. It's that, you know, Cameron does this a lot at the end of the movies, this, this peaceful moment after these huge storms that he's orchestrated in front of us. Yeah. And I mean, the whole movie, they're setting up a family dynamic between Hicks, Ripley and Newt. I mean, you see it after the facehugger scene where, you know, Ripley's holding on the Newt and Hicks is kind of over both of them. I mean, they were hinting at that the whole time that this was kind of a surrogate family that came together underneath, you know, the ultimate distress. I mean, and, you know, yeah, I think it's, for me personally, I think it's just a, should have been the ending of the series. I mean, it's, ends on a perfect, it ends on a perfect note. I mean, uh, finally an upbeat ending. I mean, even at the first, the end of the first Alien movie, it's, she, it's a happy ending, but it's really not. I mean, she lost everything and I hope I get picked up. And this one, it's like, you know what? She faced her demons. She's kind of regained some of what she lost and, you know, it is, you know, ready to move on, I guess, in life, or I guess if you could move on, I don't know if you really could after all that, but, you know, she, like you said, she regained some of what she lost, so. You move on, change, but wiser, and now you're in a better place. I think that's the whole point, so. Well, Nick, yeah. I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn rating, and I don't think it'll be much of a surprise, but what are yours for Aliens? Uh, my final thoughts are <laughs> just a, 
another great movie. I mean, so far we are two for two with this series, and it's Aliens is just as a strong movie, if not even stronger than Alien. I mean, some people could say this sequels outdoes the original. I couldn't, you know, disagree with that. I think both movies are spectacular. Both movies are, you know, different sides of the same coin in almost in a way, and it's a it's a great movie. Again, it's one of my top five movies. Yes, my top five movies include two movies from the same series. I mean, not many people can say that. And I don't know, I just gotta give it an extra large popcorn. It's Great time, great movie. If you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? Go see it right away. Nick, Nick, I'm with you. It is a fantastic ride. It's different. It's you know, I, I would say as a kid, I probably saw this one more, and I maybe liked this one more because of the action elements. The older I've gotten, I really appreciate the first one for what it is, and I I do think it's better than this. But that's not to slight this in any way. I think this movie's fantastic. It's a lot of fun, and if you just go with it, it you can really enjoy it. You don't even have to be a fan of this uh, of horror or sci-fi or any of that stuff to like it it's a good character story too and it's well done it's beautiful it looks it looks amazing and it holds up to this day and i, I think we've praised that a lot and for good reason i think this is a movie that's worthy of a lot of that and we certainly have nitpicked a lot of stuff in it too but i think it's a wonderful con- continuance of a series and so i'm with you i'll join you in that bucket of extra large popcorn man it's a it's a great film, and we're two for two. Well, Nick, uh, as we know, though, this is not the end of the series. we got a lot more to go, and we'll be back next time with Alien. For Alien 3, it's we were discussing how we we're going to exactly uh, approach this movie because there is two versions of the movie. There is the theatrical version and the assembly cut, and unlike you know Alien and Aliens where you get the director's cut and they added stuff into it, in my opinion and Jay's opinion that Alien 3, the theatrical cut and assembly cut are almost like two different movies. The assembly cut has over a half hour of additional stuff into it, adds different subplots into it, so we've decided to tackle it in two separate episodes. The first episode just talking about the theatrical cut and then the second episode um, concentrating on the assembly cut and all the drama that happened before and after the movies. Yeah, so next time we're going to talk about the theatrical cut of Alien 3 and we'll do that just like a straightforward review like we have done and then for the next entry we'll do Alien 3.1 if you will. The assembly cut which is put together by the, the editor and adds in a lot of different stuff. It will it should be an interesting podcast. I've, I've heard a lot of Alien retrospectives out there. I don't know that I've ever seen one that did the whole series that did them both like that. So we're we're doing that for you guys. Hope you're enjoying the series. You can find more entries in our film podcast at our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Um, you can link to us on our social media pages there, Facebook and Twitter, and leave us a message on our guest book, and of course find the other things that we reviewed too. And we'd really appreciate it. Leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Uh, hook up with us, and you know if you disagree with something we have uh, said or come uh, to a conclusion that we, or come to a different conclusion than we have on some of this, let us know. We'd like to interact with our fans as always we appreciate your support so until next time for nick i'm jay thanks for tuning in to film strip thanks for listening to film strip and our reviews of the alien movie franchise visit our website continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes say we take off nuke the site from orbit it's the only way to be sure All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.